Welcome to episode three of We Have Such Films to Show You, the podcast in which Josh and Yakov watch and discuss all of the Hellraiser movies, because there's nine of them and we do that sort of thing. Uh, this episode being episode three, we're looking at Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. And this one's a doozy. It's downhill from here, folks. Um, yeah. Did, uh, so... It's, yeah, uh, it's Sorry, God. Yeah, no, I, I, I it's, it, it's, you said something, I, I want to sort of framing this one compared to the last two, you said something uh, last episode, I think, uh, that really sort of bears out here, that this is the one where they decide to make a horror movie instead of a Hellraiser movie. Right. Because yeah, it just, absolutely. yeah, it feels like it's got all the parts of someone who has seen a bunch of like, you know, they watched a bunch of horror movies in the eighties. They watched a bunch of franchise horror movies in the eighties <laughs> and they took notes and they made sure it was all in here. So it's like got some of the same pieces as the other films, but the feel is very different. Yeah. It's the first, um, I mean, it's the first Hollywood Hellraiser movie. Uh, the previous ones were like made in England under you know like English film stuff, and this is like an American Hollywood movie. And boy, does it show! Um, there's there's no more of those like you know like gorgeous like dramatic setup shots where they, where it just lingers on like you know the setting and stuff. This is just like a straight up Hollywood horror movie, and um, yeah, then which explains why it was number three in theaters when it came out. The the opening weekend made three million dollars. Wow, that's not bad. I guess. Yeah, I mean, what number three. Do you know what they spent on this one? Uh the budget was. Uh, I have the okay. So the total lifetime gross is twelve million. I'm trying to. I read somewhere that the budget was about two to three million, but I can't confirm that anywhere. That's not bad. I, I was wondering if they were going to yeah. like explode because because they spent something like six million on the second one. I think. Oh, then then that figure can't be right. I'm just Googling Hellraiser 3 budget right now. Well, I don't uh, know. I mean, there was nothing in this one that looked particularly expensive. So. <laughs> yeah, the only reference I could find to the budget is that most of it was used as for the nightclub scenes. I, that, which, that makes sense. They, they, they put a lot in there. I've, I've got a couple different bulleted lists we'll get to of, of sort of montages, one of which is very much a just giant pile of horrific things they came up with to throw into... Uh, one of the late nightclub scenes where Pinhead really goes off the hook. Yeah, I, I feel like they just had a bunch of notes from the previous movie of shit we couldn't figure out how to put it, and they're like, uh, we got a lot of time to fill. Let's just you know <laughs> throw it all in there, Yep. see what sticks. There, there, there's a lot of like, let's throw it at the wall, see if it sticks stuff in this movie, and it's it shows. And this one really goes to town on the uh, let's have some more Cenobites thing. Like in the previous... Like in the first one, we really didn't see a new Cenobite at all. And in the second one, we well, except really, for Chenard. Well, that in the second one, yeah. In the oh, first yeah, one, yeah, the the first one, none. Second one, we got Chenard. Uh, we got sort of flirtations with the idea of Julia, but she really didn't follow what becomes established as a Cenobite mold. And apparently, she right. sort of went by the wayside anyway. Uh, but yeah, this one's got uh, a bunch of people who just get turned into Cenobites uh, in, in in I guess no. No less formal a fashion than the doctor did in the second one, but he really oh, didn't. No, no, no. Uh, actually, by, by the canon, I, I'm not. I have no idea what the, what this canon established by, but they are in fact pseudo cenobites oh. because to be a full fledged cenobite, you actually have to be taken down to the hell or the dimension of pain. Yeah, it's and, like it's like a union thing. Processed. Like, yeah, exactly. It's immigration, to, yeah, basically. Yeah. So they're just they're 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 in cenobite drag. They're uh, 
They're just sort of monsters. They're Padawans. But we Santa can get to that. I like, but the, the main thing is that's one of the things that feels very much like a let's make a horror film thing to me. It's yeah. like, oh, it's, well, we had the Cenobite things. Let's do some more of these. So let's turn a bunch of people into uh, people, people who embrace the, the, the characteristic that it, it, the, the, the characteristic that defines them. They should embrace it. And so apparently the characteristic which you mean, is, I mean, which would be a, like a pretty good concept if the characters were better defined. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like there's something very promising there. But it just doesn't get borne out in the film itself, uh, which, yeah, is probably. Uh, so I wanted to talk about some random, uh, some random stuff uh, I looked up uh, while trying to track down some of the credits on this. Uh, mm-hmm. Randy Miller on music this time instead of Christopher Young, who did the first two, uh, and this still uses a bunch of Christopher Young's music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know anything about Randy Miller, but uh, but but there's a changing of the hands there. It seems to be a a thing with the series where some people who were involved are no longer involved from film to film. Uh, this this film was written by Peter Atkins, who also wrote two and four, uh, and who also wrote the original Wishmaster. I guess. Really? Yeah, and, I saw that in theaters. Yeah, and he uh, got uh, I think character credit on all the other Wishmaster movies that he did not uh, actually do anything for. Uh, which is which is uh, something that uh, goes along with uh, these Hellraiser movies, with people who were involved at the beginning getting credit later on just for having come up with the idea that then gets used very badly. Uh, but but Peter Atkins was also uh, buddies with uh, Clive Barker and Doug Bradley, who the three of them and some other people back in the 1970s had an avant-garde theater group they founded called The Dog Company uh, that put on a bunch of Clive's early plays, I guess. So like there's actually a Doug Bradley, Clive Barker connection and Peter Atkins connection, like as this crazy trio that eventually led, you know, 15, you know, know, 10, 15 years later to these initial Hellraiser movies in, in bits and pieces. Yeah. I wonder what that stuff was like, if it was just, you know, like black box college theater, um, like horror stuff. That would have been actually really cool to see. I wish. I mean, you you mentioned that you know you couldn't find a lot of info on it. Uh, did you manage to dig anything up? Or I, I haven't had time to really dig into it. I I suspect there's something out there, but uh, but yeah, I didn't really find anything other than a few references to it by uh, Barker in online bios and interviews and whatnot. So I'm not sure if there's any real documentation for it. Although some of the plays I think still get put on occasionally, so we might be able to find at least yeah. some of that. And maybe he, we can just oh, go ahead. Uh, Sorry. P- I was just say Peter Atkins also plays Rick the barman. Uh, in he this. does, yes. And you know what? I actually had to look up who that was because I thought it was this actor who was in like every single, like any television you show you watch. He was in it. Uh, his name is uh, what, Mark Shepard. I thought it was Mark Shepard. Huh. Who, um, if you've seen Battlestar, he's uh, he's the attorney. Uh, if you've seen Supernatural, he plays Crowley. Oh, okay. Um, I know who you're talking about. He was in the uh, that really good episode of uh, Doctor Who with the uh, the the monsters that make you forget things. The aliens yeah, make you yeah. forget things. He was the uh, FBI agent in that. So I thought it was that guy, but it's not. It's it's Atkins. Yeah. I, I I thought for a second that it was Seth MacFarlane, but then I realized I wasn't feeling intense loathing, so it couldn't have been. <laughs> and plus, he wasn't doing any funny voices. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that was that, uh, that's Peter Atkins, I feel like is the big connection. And that was how I found out about the things I mentioned the other day too. the, uh, the, the fan films, uh, which we'll get fan into f- some other time, but uh, a guy named Jonathan Q made a couple of 
uh, fan-made films based on the Hellraiser franchise, uh, one in 2006 and one in 2009, um, the first of which, Hellraiser Prophecy, is not just a Hellraiser fan film, but also uh, the Prophecy franchise fan film merged into one somehow, and I need to sit down and watch this sometime. Uh, but that also had credit for Peter Atkins for having written characters used in it. So I was very confused at first because I thought maybe this was like Hellraiser like official productions we'd somehow missed, but uh but no, it's 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 fan stuff. But that'll be a thing to look at sometime, I think. We'll have to check that out. I think, you know, I'm pretty sure we could just I, I was wondering if we just tweet at um Clive Barker and ask him about the uh the old production stuff with uh Doug Bradley and Peter Atkins, but I'm kind of afraid he's gonna find out about this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have we been mean? I, I we've certainly been critical bit. and jocular, but yeah. I, I feel like I've been more. I've been trying to criticize, like you know, the the result on film, not the intent, because I, I really, right. I really enjoy Barker's writing, and uh, it was fun rereading the novella, uh, and I, I, I genuinely like the first movie and and and, and the second movie really, um, for for all all the various flaws in it, but. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it is possible he'd be like, "Oh, hey, yeah, that's great, guys. You totally uh, shit all over that thing I did. That'd be, I'd love to talk to you. Yeah, let's totally do that." So it could be tricky. That could be that could be dicey. But maybe maybe we'll dare at some point. Maybe somewhere in the throes of uh, Hellraiser Seven, we'll be like, "What could possibly be worse than, <laughs> than than watching this thing that Clive had nothing to do with?" Let's uh, let's get him on the horn and let him you know verbally abuse us. Uh, <laughs> So Hellraiser 3 is, uh, as you pointed out, and I somehow blanked on this even watching it twice, it, it is definitively set in New York City, and we know this because there are at least a couple of establishing shots. Uh, of I the- only saw the one. Did you Did you see any other ones? I, I don't remember when you if you rewatched it before or after I mentioned that, um, but I... I- the only, yeah, the only, the only just genuine establishing shot I saw was just that one like quick shot of the twin towers, and that was it. See, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm just remembering another one that was actually that one, and it looked bigger when I watched it on the, my projector than when I watched it in a browser window. Because I remember, I feel like I remember a big shot of the twin towers, but, but really the one I found on a skim was about 24 minutes in, and yeah, it's an establishing shot of the Brooklyn Bridge at night in the foreground, That's and the right. twin towers in the background. So maybe just the one there shot. Was, uh, no, there was yeah, no that I there was actually a full screen just shot of the twin towers. Oh, okay, in full frame. So okay, so there was at least two established. So it's definitely, we're, we're definitely in New York. We're definitely in the vicinity of Manhattan. Yep. Um, As brought to you by North Carolina. Yes, Greensboro, North Carolina. Shot. Yes, they also had an LA unit, and I want to know why did they have an LA unit if they basically shot the whole thing in Greensboro? Did they just need to do some? Uh, patchwork later on to get some extra b-roll in la or were they not sure if it was going to be in new york or in la so they shot b-roll for both but only use the establishing shot from uh, the brooklyn bridge yeah i i kind of want i probably was just filling in la or something but uh but i kind of want to know because there's nothing else in the film that makes it in new york like there's right, yeah, once exactly. again it's it's point it's anonymous like uh yeah like they don't even want to say like there was no references that made you think oh yeah that's such a new york thing you know yeah, there was a, and there, and there was in fact a lot of stuff that would uh, keep you from ever thinking it was New York if you didn't know it was New York, like the um, just you know the struggling uh, news journalist who owns her apartment with a uh, with a gorgeous view of the city and has a spare room. I, I know that that doesn't happen here. Yeah, she's got a condo. She's got a high rise condo with a beautiful view, clearly close into downtown, based on the sort of terrible uh, Matt 
in the background of a cityscape. Uh, now, okay, was that a mat? I thought that was like an enormous miniature. Well, well, maybe I don't know. I thought it was a mat, but I, I wasn't looking super carefully. I, I think it's telling that they never shot, uh, you know, down from that window, so they never had to prove that they had access to a uh, a high rise building for filming. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I I I I'd have to look closer. I was just sort of like writing it off as oh, it's a mat, but uh, it may not technically be a mat. I don't know. They have the same thing over the the opening shot of the film when. Uh, J.P. Monroe, uh, our antagonist, sort of that we'll talk about in a second here. When he when he pulls up to the Pyramid Gallery at night, there's also a big, similarly sort of dodgy cityscape in the background of yes, really at that angle, impossibly tall <laughs> buildings. It's like <laughs> Mega Tokyo or something. Uh, well, you know, it's like uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You've got all these like extreme angles meant to, you know, disturb the viewer. Or that's the story we're. Yeah, going that's on. it. Yeah, I think you're on it. It's yeah, it's uh, sure. Uh, <laughs> find intentionality wherever you can. That's our motto. This is the credulous podcast. <laughs> Everything that happened happened for a good reason. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, you know, so, yeah. So she's got yeah. She's she's this struggling journalist, Joey, our our protagonist. Played by Terry Farrell, aka Lieutenant Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine. Uh, she's a journalist. She can't get a real gig. Uh, you know, she's struggling to break into journalism. No one will take her seriously. She's a they young send her woman. to cover an empty hospital. Yeah, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense in any way. That whole scene is a muddle. But uh, but but and yet she's got this place. And I'm thinking, is it that they just have no idea what a condo like that would cost? Or is it that she is just totally set for life? Like maybe her dad had a billion-dollar life insurance policy when he went and got killed in Vietnam. And so she just she, – she doesn't actually need to work as a journalist. She's just a, a, a bored rich kid, and that's what she feel like doing. Well, she mentions that, that she has a mortgage, and she sounds like she's struggling about oh, it. Oh, right. So she's, she yeah, for a down payment at yeah, least. Yeah, she's trying to buy it from the bank. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's confusing. I think, I think it's just one of those things where any sitcom set in New York has just like these, you know, unreasonably sprawling apartments for people who are, you know, supposedly middle class or even lower. That is the simpler um, explanation. Well, and, and yes, yeah, like they, they, they needed the window for the, the window scene later. And I guess once you've got a, a high rise window with a view, you're sort of stuck with the unreasonable apartment. So, uh, so yeah. But yeah, so let, 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 let's talk about our characters. We got Joey. It's like Joanna, Joey. Uh, summer's summer skill? skill now is that is that she's skilled at the summer or summers when she kills hmm i'm gonna go with summers when she kills i think so too because she sort of helps murder pinhead while standing in summary memory vietnam at the end so yeah that works okay sold <laughs> She's our struggling and, uh, reporter who, who – she is like – once again in this film, like this film series specializes in like totally unlikable characters because she's totally the sympathetic sort of you know last girl horror movie character who we're supposed to be getting behind. But her response to almost everything anyone says in the film is either snide or just sort of condescending and either way sarcastic. Yeah, and at a, at a certain point, I stopped wondering why she's getting shitty journalism gigs. I, I don't think she's very good at yeah, it. Yeah, she's not very good at it. She doesn't relate well to people. I think this is actually a film about like people compensating poorly for their autism. She's 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 on the Asperger's 
spectrum and and she's not getting any sort of help or therapy or, or, or cognitive behavioral guidance or whatever for that. And so she's sort of stumbling around just failing to relate to people. And it's really a cautionary tale about society's failure to recognize and try and you know provide a safety net for uh, low-level uh, psychological struggles. <laughs> There's actually um, a scene that that backs up uh, your your theory there, where um, the first time she meets Spencer, and you know he's sitting on the floor staring at Lamarchand's box, basically in the same way that Tommy Westfall is staring at the uh, the snow globe. The, yes. uh, the snow globe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say right now that the Hellraiser universe takes place in the Tommy Westfall universe. So I'm gonna wait for the Law and Order crossover. Well, what if what if the Tommy Westfall universe takes place inside the Hellraiser universe? Ah. What if Saint Elsewhere is just what what Spencer saw when he was looking into the box that first time? He watched the entire series run of Saint Elsewhere in one go, and it drove him mad, and so he nailed pins into his head. That's a good theory. I think yeah, it's you know, it, I think it's got some legs. Uh, so that's Joey. That's our that's our protagonist. Uh, who is. Uh, She's not Terry Farrell is not great in this movie, but I'm not sure how you could be great in this movie. She is in her defense not awful the way almost everyone else in the film is. Like her and Doug Bradley both do a good job with what they were given. Yeah. And everybody else is really anywhere from bad to terrible. Um, I think the guy that played J.P. Monroe at least nah, it he was like okay. he was having he was okay. fun. True. He it, it was it, the character was pretty terrible the direction of the character was pretty terrible but he was you're right he, he he was at least he was there he showed up he knew what he was doing he chewed the scenery when the scenery was directed towards his mouth uh i shouldn't i shouldn't yeah. write him off just because his character was a horrible douchebag because uh, that means he did his job right right so exactly exactly also i want to know who was responsible for casting terry is it pharrell farrell as the main character named Joey, and then casting another actress to play a character named Terry. It's, it's like this was intentionally made to piss off anybody trying to talk or write about this film. It is, let, let, let's be fair, though. Terry, the character, is Terry with an I. So clearly, that's you can hear it if you listen carefully to the intonation. Terry, Terry. So, I, I had yeah, to just... watch this movie with subtitles because the mixing was so bad <laughs> that I could not watch it at night because it was just like if I turned it up high enough to hear the the dialogue, then like the explosions were way too loud for watching it at like midnight and otherwise I couldn't hear the dialogue. Yeah, I really had to I, I had to ride the volume uh, on my remote control throughout this film. And, and the mixing, you know, the mixing was not very good in the first or the second either. And maybe this will be continuing to be a thing. I don't understand how there people was less didn't... explosions in the first. two. True. True. I guess there were, there, there were fewer super noisy things. It was just sort of badly mixed instead of like scare the dog badly mixed. So JP Monroe, let's talk about, let's talk about JP Monroe, the, the, the notional antagonist of at least like the first act and a half of the film. Uh, who is a douchebag. He owns a club, a club called The Boiler Room. Uh, he is not played by John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats, but it is a terrific impression. <laughs> um, he, I mean, it's the, the likeness is kind of striking to the extent that I, I would like to actually see John Darnielle like, perform scenes from this film. You, you, you should tweet him about it. We can I get should. him and Clive together, and they can do a remake, uh, Dogma style, for like oh, $5 with, 
you know, Lars von Trier can have a, a walk-on cameo where he just, you know, dismisses the whole thing as terrible. Well, um, then you have to shoot in Denmark because he's afraid of flying, as I read well, today. Why not? Let's let's go to Denmark and we'll say it's New York City and we'll make sure we include a shot of the Battersea Power Station just to really <laughs> confuse everything. Uh, so J.P. Monroe, who I keep wanted to call J.P. Morgan. Like, it's like douchebags. Who's a douchebag? Oh, financial industries. Uh, he's he's a club owner. He's a, he, he likes to fuck the ladies and then kick him out. He's a serial uh, philanderer, not philanthropist. Uh, <laughs> J.P. Morgan, Morgan, serial philanthropist, yes. Uh, <laughs> he's and, also, he committed parricide? Oh, yes, that's right. It turns out that... Uh, Is that the word? Is that, am I using the right one? Uh, patricide? Patricide? That, that, that would be dad killing. Uh, yeah, and he Paris, killed his parents. Parricide, killing of... Uh, parents are close. So yes, he, according to, well, at least according to Pinhead, he killed his yes. parents. Which I think we can take at face value because he seems pretty taken aback when Pinhead drops that out and not in a, why the fuck would you say something like that sort of way? That's uh, true. So yeah, we've got this compromised uh, parent killer, lost soul fellow, uh, and we've got Joey, and we've got Terry, as you mentioned. Terry with an I, this sort of like poor, lost, broken girl, and they play that stereotype like to the hilt in every possible way. Absolutely. Uh, uh, like the first time that um, was uh, Joey mentions that you know she had a dream about her dad and like oh, the first thing that Terry leaves to is like did you know was he like and she just you know generally uh, like alludes to the fact that Joey was molested and she's like no no I'm like well is that really the first thing you go to when somebody says I had a dream about my dad so yeah they 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 played that up they they, uh, they weren't even I was I was actually confused the first time I watched that scene I had asked my wife what she thought the deal there was and it, it makes sense i think that's exactly what it is she's supposed to be like oh you had a bad dream about your dad was he like uh it's like oh was he like an abusive dad oh okay and, and it makes sense it scans but yeah it's like there's that she's she's walking around with a teddy bear sucking on a lollipop totally doing the manic oh i made breakfast and i'm terrible at it but oh my gosh i made dr- breakfast and then Joey, oh, we, we- when we when we we got to go back to that scene because yeah. that that scene was something else. She um she also carries around a single lockpick which yes. she's very good with, but apparently she mentions that she only breks into places when it's raining. So I I, I mean I, she's I guess she's got a she code. Just, she's got a code, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like well you know weather's nice. I guess I'm sleeping in the park. It's like oh it's raining. Time to break into an art gallery. Yes. Well, speaking of that gallery, let's let, let, yeah. let, let, let's talk the chronology of this. We'll we'll, we'll jump around. I, I feel like I feel like maybe we should skip a little bit more of the dumb details than we did last time because we really sort of like recapped the entire film. Yeah, uh, it seems like we could skip some of the boring stuff, but uh, but you're, you're right. We should get to like the the form of it, um, which is basically J.P. Monroe shows up without explanation at a place called the Pyramid Gallery and goes inside and looks around at creepy art. Uh, and then he sees the Pillar of Souls, which is never called that in the film, I don't think, but it is the Pillar of Souls. I, I think uh, Terry refers to it at once as the statue pillar thing, which is just incredibly redundant. Yeah. Any one of those words would have sufficed. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. So he, uh, he, he comes into the, into the gallery, and the gallery is full of just really bad art and yep. they they actually reference that that later when it turns out that you know the whoever owns the gallery just like buys up uh art from asylums and like Great art school sales and- <laughs> yeah so it's like well we don't have a budget to get decent like horror art so yeah. you know let's just lampshade it a bit yeah so there's all this crappy uh macabre art uh 
and uh and then he sees the pillar and and the pillar okay so this is this is a a four-sided pillar covered with basically a carved pillar with tons of bodies like a Hieronymus Bosch meets uh Rodin's The Gates of Hell uh in fact I, I feel like The Gates of Hell is probably the visual reference for this fucking thing yeah um but but it's a pillar and Pinhead's face is on it along with a bunch of other writh- writhing faces and figures and and body parts and whatnot uh but this and it's is rotating. and it's rotating just like That's the nice. pillar from the first couple films and is this supposed to be the same pillar but someone did a little bit of work on it or I is this just supposed to be the same pillar because I think it, it's supposed to be the same pillar from the end of the previous movie that yeah. rises out of the mattress. I think it's supposed to be that pillar that just somehow turned to stone because uh, I guess that's what happens when you take it out of England. I, I'm, yeah. not, <laughs> I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, like how when they took the Cleopatra's needle from uh, Egypt to England and it like immediately started decaying because of the horrible air. Uh. Maybe when the when the skeleton dragon was bringing it to America to display in an art gallery, it just got a little fucked up on the way and you know be. crossed it over. Yeah. So JP sees this pillar, and then out of nowhere comes the uh, the hobo dragon. I think I think it's the hobo dragon. The it guy is, in the yeah. gallery. The guy running the gallery is clearly the hobo dragon from the first movie. The the creepy blue eyed bum. Um. And it's weird because it, it doesn't seem like he's running the art gallery because, like, the back door of the gallery is open behind him and he comes up out of nowhere and he's like, yeah, I totally run this place. <laughs> like, to buy this thing? Yeah, I'll sell that that's, to you. That, that's his dig. He, he he breaks into stores that are closed at night, opens them up, and then pretends to be the owner and sells things to people. That's how he gets off. Um that actually happened to me at, at, at a job I had once where I, I had to show up there very early. It was a, you know, a store in the village, and I, and I opened it up. It was like Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, and I accidentally set the alarm off. And you know, eventually I turned it off, and then the cops showed up because they do it automatically. They're like, do you, you know, are you supposed to be here? I'm like, no, I opened this store up at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday to rob it. <laughs> this is my grand plan. Why would you I did do not that? actually say that, but yeah. So the Hobo Dragon, I want, I want to make uh, another note here. The Hobo Dragon is played, in this case, by uh, Lawrence Mortorf, who is also a producer of the film. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I remember seeing that name in the credits because it was a very distinctive name. Yes, one does not simply walk into Mortorf, presumably. Um, thank you. I actually wrote that down and then recited <laughs> it. I've, it's, this is not my best work. But, uh, well, but he executive produced uh, Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, which uh, I read was being shot at the same time as this movie with the same crew. Nice. <laughs> oh, man. We'll have, to, we'll have to pencil that in for a future episode then. I think just a cross-reference that, that look, for a, look for little telltale notes. Oh, so, so, so Mordorf is credited in this as Bum? Like just bum. Yeah, he is. But just he's bum. but 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 the hobo dragon in the first film is credited there as derelict, and there's a credited role in this film for derelict. But it's that's just that's just the hobo who knocks on the bus that uh, that Joey is riding home from the murder hospital. In. Oh yeah, that was the 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 equivalent of like the guy pressing his face up against the window, uh, up against the asylum like door, cheap scare right. in the previous right, one. Right, exactly. So, so there's a there's some confusing crediting there. I'm wondering if this is actually a, a gambit by the Hobo Dragon to throw uh, horror fans off his his trail if they're paying too much attention. Um, Maybe it's like a British English American English thing. I don't know, but there's both bum and derelict in this movie, so it's like uh, I I don't know I don't know what happened there. I just wish they'd credited him as Hobo Dragon and you know kept things clear. 
Oh, another casting thing. Uh, we're never going to talk about this actual movie. I just yeah. want to talk about unrelated things. Uh, <laughs> from the second movie, we talked about the cop, the cop at the beginning, uh, who was like the most sympathetic cop yes. ever. And for that matter, mm-hmm. the most sympathetic character in any Hellraiser film that we've seen. Uh, it was played by a guy named Angus McInnes, who also is notably maybe the only person in Hellraiser 2 to have had a career before and after involved in any sort of A-list production. Um, wow. He was in Eyes Wide Shut as, uh, I think, uh, a doorman. He was hmm. uh, in Hellboy as, I think, a cop. Uh, he's in Vikings right now. He's been in a couple episodes of that. So he's he's actually had and continues to have work. And I say, go him. That's probably why he seemed so weird in that movie is because he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought the, I thought I was showing up for a police procedural where anything that makes sense would happen. I, uh, I'm just going to leave the film now and I'm not coming back. And so they had to write him out and he was, you know. That's Maybe that's the, that's what they told him. They wanted to get a really like real performance out of him, like Kubrick with uh, what's his name, Slim Pickens and Doctor Strangelove, where didn't tell him it was a you know they didn't tell him it was a horror movie, so it's just a psychological drama. We just need you to be a cop. He's he like, just All right. he just thought it was a pilot for a new uh, cop show. Uh, oh, I, and and also in the credits, there's 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 a band playing in the club early on, and they're called the Armored, Armored Saints. Saints. And one of them is credited simply as Gonzo. So, uh, so Gonzo, <laughs> they're a real the band, actually. I, I kind of I figured. Well, they're credited with music in the in the music section in the credits too. So yeah, I'm assuming that was actually the band on stage. But maybe Gonzo is like a really talented stand-in when you need a more photogenic band than you actually have on the soundtrack. No, uh, Gonzo Sandoval, uh, drums. Fucking a. How about okay. that? And uh, that was actually really weird when you when they uh, introduced the boiler room, the, the the club, the music like played like so. First of all, this club has a ten dollar cover in nineteen ninety one, which is insane. Um, like in two thousand and six, like I would refuse to pay a five dollar cover to just to go to a club, and this is so. Um, it has a very dangerous sign. It's the, the sign is on fire. That whole club is just a one big like fire code <laughs> violation, honestly. Just and hell and uh, Pinhead just makes it worse when he puts up all those candles. But oh, sure, um, yeah. there was uh, right. So when they come in, they're playing like almost like southern rock music, and they get in like a bit deeper into the club, and they're playing you know like '90s industrial, and then they go you know even further back, and Armored Saint are playing, and they're just like you know like a straight up heavy metal band. So they're playing three very disparate types of music in in this you know ostensibly goth club. J.P. Um, Monroe is a Renaissance man. He is a man of eclectic nice. tastes. And one of my, my one of my favorite things was when um, this this is when uh, Terry. So uh, Terry meets. Um, no, I'm sorry, Joey. See, look at this. <laughs> Joey meets Terry at the hospital uh, when Terry is, uh, comes in with like her boyfriend or something, who's you know covered in hell chains. That's not her boyfriend. She wasn't even with him, man. Oh, that's she right. She was just there. Right. Yeah, she was just Got some nothing guy. to do with her. That's right. That's right. And then she lights up a smoke. Everybody is smoking everywhere in this movie all the time. Which makes it even worse that like the best they can come up with a visual thing for for Terry when she becomes a pseudo cenobite is to be smoking out of her neck. And and she pokes at at, at Joey yes. and leaves cigarette burns. Yes. This is this is the best they could do. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get there. So yeah, so 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 uh so the, yeah, they're at the hospital, and then um, this is like the first 
FX shot of the movie. First of all, there's before that, there's this one weird shot. I'm wondering if this is like a deleted scene or something, but there's a nurse whose head is constantly facing away from the camera, so all you see is just this long blonde hair, and she's setting out like all this bizarre medical equipment. Well, maybe not bizarre, but like creepy-looking medical yeah, equipment. Yeah, it, like, it, it's a creepily staged montage of her laying out various like heavy-duty operating room things, a bone saw, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, retractors and, and, and shit. And, and it's, I mean, it's supposed to probably be like a visual allusion to, you know, Chenard's surgery stuff, but they never go anywhere with it, and they never explain why they don't show her face, so I'm just wondering what happened there. Yeah, she's just credited as blonde nurse, and we never hear from her again. I, I tried to look for her in the end of that scene and didn't see her anywhere, ambi- you, know, you know, unambiguously one way there. So, yeah, and she, she even gives the, she gives the bone saw a little uh, sensual touch yeah. as she's setting it down. So, yeah, it's like that. I don't fucking know. I don't I know. I bet it was just Peter Atkins in a wig. It probably anything that we can't explain and didn't get a clear shot of the face, it's Peter Atkins in a wig. That's 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 the rule. <laughs> so um yeah, so they, 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 they drag this guy in and you know uh Joey, the fantastic reporter, is in the way of like the gurney as they're taking it him in and doesn't move until she gets yelled at. Um and so he's, and then, and the chains sort of like levitate into the air and start pulling at him. Yeah, chains uh, attached to you know, nothing, electrified, and just like yeah, tearing him to pieces. Like in in yeah. the first couple films, happened at times, but without there being any uh, hellscape around, just these chains attached to the. They're dude. trying to get back into hell, like that dog in Snatch. You know, always comes back to the, uh, always comes back to the travelers. That could be. Um, and then his head explodes. Yes. Just like I in mean, Snatch. Um, yeah, just like in Snatch. <laughs> his just, just, like, nothing's happening to his head during this you scene. You know, there, there, I think there were a couple shots of chains in his head, but yeah, it was not clearly stated. It certainly wasn't like the previous Frank being torn to pieces at the end of Hellraiser 1 thing, where there was clearly the idea was all the chains were pulling at his face. Yeah. Uh, but so, it yeah. was as inexplicable as uh, Chenard's death scene, where his head just comes <laughs> off. <laughs> it, it just wasn't well attached. Uh, so yeah, so that... So head blows up. Um, I forgot where I was going. Oh, that's right. Uh, and Terry, so Terry, Terry, and Joey. Um, before the guys' heads blow up, when they've just taken him into the the otherwise quiet right. ER, uh, Terry's ter- Terry's in the the hallway with Joey and uh, is ranting about it. she didn't know the guy. She just met him and had nothing to do with her. And and Joey's trying to sort of figure out what's going on. And I think Terry just ends up bailing. From there, and that's why Joey ends up going to J.P. Monroe's club, the boiler room, to try and find this girl. That's right. And as she walks in, she says to the guy at the door, "I'm looking for a pretty girl." And the guy replies, "J.P. Monroe. He's in the back." Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, the the obviously it's supposed to be. It's like you know, if you're looking for a pretty girl, J.P. Monroe knows all the pretty girls. Yeah. But it's really not how it comes off, and it doesn't help that J.P. Monroe really is pretty like a girl. <laughs> He's 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 got he's got a nice set of cheekbones, you know. Um, he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and um, the there's actually a uh, a corridor scene um, when they're leading like the gurney into the ER right beforehand. There's like you know this quiet shot of uh, Joey walking down the hallway, and it actually looks a lot like the uh, the basement like sub asylum shot in the previous movie. I don't know if that was intentional or not, or if it's just you know spooky corridors look like spooky corridors. But yeah, but you no, know, there definitely was sort of like a, a visual echo there intended. Otherwise, also we we need to stop another important dumb minor character. Uh, when Terry's standing around in an ER for inexplicably filming an empty emergency room, 
uh, on her shitty non-assignment. Uh, her cameraman friend, Doc, who has Lemmy's mustache from Motorhead, which is important since Motorhead did that song at the end of the, the yep. movie. Uh, Doc, Doc Lemmy camera guy is like, oh, you got to keep your head out there, uh, Joey. You never know. The story of your life could be right around the corner. Uh, and this is one of like a bunch of examples of them trying to do some like foreshadowing or editing cleverness that they just totally blow by not pacing it right. It's like that. What's the secret to comedy? Timing. Same thing goes for making an okay horror movie because like the story of your life could be right around the corner, and then 15 seconds later, the story of her life comes right around the corner. It's like, wow, that really you left that hanging. You really built the mystery there. That was. Reminds me of uh, an episode of uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 for uh, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, where, um, you know, the teenage werewolf's dad is, like, leaving to his night job, and he's just like, you know, I left you some hamburger in the fridge, don't eat it raw like you did last time, and just Crow says, well, we just blew the foreshadowing budget for the movie. (laughs) Yes. There's also a slow, sort of sloppy, wet heartbeat sound as Joey's waiting in the foreshadowing hallway before the, the gurney comes in. And I felt like oh, that was right. maybe a callback to the heartbeat stuff that came up in the previous films. There's a lot of weird recurring bits of sonic stuff that just don't really do anything in the movie. Like, they didn't really do a whole lot in the previous movies either, but they just sort of, like, kept it but didn't know why, it feels like. Anyway, so the guy explodes, and then Terry, who is complaining about the lack of a story, somehow doesn't call, like, either the cops or her news station, but instead, like, goes home feeling freaked out about the fact that an operating room just exploded. She really well, is. is she, it's New York in 1991. What are the cops going to do? I'm just saying she's the worst reporter ever. She's the she worst really is reporter ever. At her job. Like, she, like she's the only one who didn't get annoyed at how quickly they went from foreshadowing to the actual execution of the story of your life scene. Cause she didn't notice an operating room exploding. She's like, man, this night just can't get any worse. Yeah, and then she does no more reporting for the rest of the movie. Yeah, she, well, she does I'm a little bit sure of investigation. Place over at least several days, but unless it takes place over a weekend, and I don't know how journalists work, but the, the journalists I know work on the weekend. She just sort of stops doing journalism <laughs> to solve this mystery box. Well, maybe you should just concentrate on your career. Yeah, if you're planning about being sent to empty hospitals. E- exactly. She doesn't actually even work for the news station. She just—they're trying to be nice to her. So and like, yet oh, she offers, the, tells uh, Terry that she might be able to get her a job at the news station. Yes. She does threaten to get her station manager involved when she's trying to get the videotape from the Chouinard Institute archives, too. So she the at least... all-powerful news station <laughs> manager. Like, Don't make He'll me... put the fear of God in you. <laughs> so she goes to the boiler room. Uh, she, she gives a very bad descriptions of a pretty girl she's looking for. Well, I mean, there's not even a description. The entire description is, I'm looking for a pretty girl. Well, but she follows up a little bit later with, uh, she's later talking to, like, the DJ, and she's like, I'm looking for a girl really pretty about this tall, jet black hair, uh, a couple of, so she she does an effort, and the, but the guy still appropriately does, is like, that doesn't help me, we're in a fucking club full of women, and and, this is, and then she's like, oh, I think it might be J.P. Monroe's girlfriend, I was like, oh, okay, go talk to J.P. in the restaurant, which the restaurant, you, you yeah. established we go through three different genres of music in this club and then i guess right next door to it like attached to it is a fancy restaurant uh with like no pounding music in the background and they're playing like but Stravinsky there is like or whatever a, like like a silhouette of a guy dancing in what looks like one of the uh like a mad max costume yeah or like a guar character yeah 
yeah, so yeah, like, like a gore thing. It was that was the only like sort of clubby element. thing going on in there. Yeah. And uh, except that it's you know like fancy waiters and uh, you know like wine and 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 J.P. Monroe. Um, you know that's the boiler room restaurant. Of course, yep. every 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 goth club is a restaurant. Oh, you know, you know who she says the "I'm looking for a pretty girl" line to? Uh, it's to the bartender, uh-huh. uh, played by Peter Atkins, who who she walks up to the bar and she's like, "Excuse me" or whatever, and he turns around to face her with sort of a thin smile on his face, and he's holding a cocktail mixer in which there is a flaming drink. So he turns around <laughs> and is like, Zoom, "There's a flaming cocktail." Can I help you? I'm looking for a pretty girl. Yeah. <sighs> and it's important that he turned around with that flaming drink because it's like the only thing that ties into the fact that later on he can blow fire once he's a pseudo cenobite. So oh, the sign above him is on fire. Well, that too. That too. But it, he wasn't wearing the sign. He didn't get thrown in the sign. I feel like I feel like the flaming drink was the closest he had to was, him. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And, and his cenobite name is Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because you know it's this is like the the wittiest thing in the movie is that they named his Cenobite Barbie because a he's covered in barbed wire and b because he barbecues things with his fireballs. Yes. But he's also a bar tender. Oh, so it's it is layers, man. That is the oh, most complex man. thing in the film is his nickname being Barbie. That that really makes up for the fact that they're constantly talking about a window in both a literal and metaphorical yeah, sense, uh, never really indicate uh, which uh, way. Yeah, well, and I think it. I think that was supposed to be a whole clever thing, and we'll talk about that. But yeah. anyway, so she goes to the club. She tries to get. Uh, she tries to find Terry. Uh, JP offers her a rose. She blows him off, which again, terrible investigation. You know what you do when someone's sort of a dick when you're trying to investigate something? You play along a little bit and investigate more. You don't make a sassy, oh, well, you only date you know, prepubescent girls comment and stomp off because you aren't going to get any more info that way. Yeah, yeah, I have a note here that just says alienate the lead, question mark. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then... Uh, then she has a dream oh, yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a dream sequence that takes place during the Vietnam War because why not? Um, and did you, did you notice that, was she green screened into that dream sequence? There was like a couple there of was, there was shots one, where there, she was and a couple where she wasn't. Yeah, mostly she wasn't but there was a couple, there was a specific one that I noticed where they do a transition scene later in the film where they transition from Vietnam to World War One to make the jump from her dream about her father to sort of Elliot Spencer knee pinheads uh, World War One limbo scape that he lives in, I guess. And they, yeah, they, so they do a close up shot of her, like, you know, shoulders and up, hair blowing a little bit. And in the background is the sunny uh, Vietnam. And then it transitions to not so sunny World War One Europe. But there's no details in either of the before or after that they transition through. And it's a really conspicuous, like, blue screen shot. So it's yeah. like they, they intentionally set you up with a really distractingly poorly executed effect shot that also accomplishes nothing visually other than suggesting a transition that they could have just done with a fucking cut. Uh, I was angry at that scene. I was like, why did you do this? This is Also, dumb. isn't Vietnam a jungle and not a forest clearing? Well, yeah, I'm sure there's some meadowy bits, right? You know, I don't know. That is, Greensboro, North Carolina is not a jungle, <laughs> and I think that's basically what's going on here. Yeah, it was. It was only until I saw the like the Viet Cong with you know the, the those large hats. I actually had a note here that says, "Which war is this?" <laughs> because there was no way to tell until you saw the fact that the other guys were the Viet Cong. Yep. Yeah, I was like, "It's Vietnam or Korea? It's probably Vietnam, timing wise, because she was probably just like a little kid." Okay. Anyway, so she has this dream with her where her dad dies in Vietnam, and she's standing there in a white dress, uh, which I want to say 
the original Hellraiser film, Kirsty has a dream about her dead dad under a white sheet. So we've got a dead dad, and the dress really wasn't much more than a white sheet. So, so there we go. Eh? Um, and Julia's conspicuous white suit from the second film. True, and, and the writhing under the white sheets of the taunting ladies in Frank's personal hell. So nice. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of the parallels. Um, so anyway, that dream sequence happens, and that's important because it comes back several times in the film in various ways. But then. Uh, I don't even remember where we transitioned. Oh, I think she gets woken up by a phone call, and it's Terry, because Terry found her business card at the club like, oh, after right. J.P. chucked it. So Terry has already proven that she's better at investigative work <laughs> than the investigative journalist who is trying to find her. But she calls her, and she's like, oh, hey, it's, it's, it's Terry. Can I come over? And uh, she does. And I want to say this is – it was at this scene, like, I didn't really get a bead on Terry in that first scene in the, the hospital corridor, but in this scene, it became very clear to me that in a slightly different time, this role should have gone to Eliza Dushku. Yeah. Because she was born to play this. It's totally Faith. It's Faith yeah. from Buffy. Uh, and Eliza Dushku would have done a better job of it than this girl. I think yeah, it all would have worked um, out very well. That's actually, you know, the the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, who does she remind me of? And now, yeah, you, it, it, the, it's basically Faith. It is. It's totally. Um, if, if you're listening to this and you're not sure, Faith from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I, I can't imagine there, there's much of an audience for this show that hasn't seen <laughs> Buffy, but let's just, yeah. Buffy? Did he, did he say Buddy? 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 Buddy the what? That, Something about zombies. I don't know. Um, that movie from the 90s? <laughs> And that's um, where Terry has her monologue. So Terry comes over. She hangs out in uh, Joey's apartment. She, and keep in mind, the only interaction that, that Terry and Joey have had up to this point was, you know, just like uh, Terry being really sketchy at the hospital. Yeah. That's while it. being She's like, yeah, traumatized by over. seeing a guy torn to pieces by, by yeah. hooks. So, yeah, come on okay. over, street person. Why so not? That, yeah. So then they hang out and have a girl's night. And Terry does a bunch of smoking and, and establishes that she doesn't dream, as we discussed earlier, when yeah. Joey talks about her dream about her non-abusive dad. Uh, and they're best friends, like, instantly. Yes. They're telling each other, like, the, the hopes and dreams, and, and you know, they, they really, they, they hit it off so fast that it's, it's it, it seems like they, we, we missed a scene somewhere. Well, they hit it the, off in a Joey's kind of a standoffish jerk sort of way. So it's like, they hit it off, but I'm not sure I would have hit it off with Joey, because she's doing that whole, oh, yeah, I've got a sarcastic remark. And then Terry's just like, oh, I'm super fragile, and... So it's like, they, they hit it off in, like, the worst sort of codependent, this is a doomed friendship uh, sort of way, which I guess yeah. maybe there's some realism there. I don't know. Um, yeah. And I think at one point they asked about, uh, Joey asked her about JP, JP, and she refers to him as a punk head, which I, I've never heard that phrase before. No, no, no. She, she was talking about the, the kid with the box who was just some punk kid. Oh, the, I hate to demystify. Those uh, close captions were wrong. Oh, yeah. You can't trust the captions. Someone has to type that shit in, and they may not be as attentive as I am to the fine nuances <laughs> of Hellraiser dialogue. So, punk kid. He was just some punk kid. Maybe, you know, whatever. She knew him a little bit from the club, but then he got boxed, and he was a thief. And she has the box. Gonna, that's right. And this is the first time we get this stupid, stupid camera trick that is – they repeat so many times in the movie where it's like a fast motion, uh, like, I don't know, it's not a dolly zoom, it's just like a fast motion zoom um, 
where it's like really jittery like and uh there's like a fisheye effect and they keep repeating that kind of zoom throughout the movie constantly as like you know a motif and it just doesn't work they do two things actually i wanted to talk about this because uh the camera gimmicks are a thing that i've become sort of aware of in horror movies over time as i've sort of paid attention because i feel like it's it's like a bad disease that horror directors and enthusiasts catch just as a result so there's like you say, there's that, that there's that weird sort of quick zoom fisheye thing with a sort of fisheye lens and throwing something into extreme foreground, which she does with the box as she holds it out. Uh, and then there's also uh, some split focus shots. Like they clearly got themselves a split focus lens or a, a diopter adapter for a lens. Um, and I don't know if you know about this trick, but basically it's, it's bifocals for a camera lens where you've got a very different point of focus on one side and the other of a, a, of a lens. So basically what you can do is put something in the extreme foreground in one half of the shot and something in the distance in the other and have them both be in tight, tight focus. I didn't actually notice that. What did they, did they use it on the, on the box or, uh, they, they, they used it, uh, the, they, they, they used it the box at one point. I think, uh, when, when, uh, Terry is alone in Joey's apartment and she's, uh, sitting across the room and the box is sort of maybe implicitly calling to her. So it's in the foreground on the right side, sitting on top of the cable box on the TV. And then she's sitting in the background sort of looking over at it. And they're both in tight focus. And it's one of the thoughts you don't notice it if you're not looking for it, because there's nothing wrong per se. The images on the screen are in focus. But once you start looking at it in terms of optics, you realize, well, but they can't both be in focus. Cause like, nothing right. has that kind of depth of field and then once you start seeing it it gets very distracting and now it just pulls me out of whatever the fuck i'm watching once it does <laughs> i'm like oh you used a split field adapter didn't you yeah but you're real proud of yourself so it does it there yeah. but it does it earlier when jp's having his vinegar strokes on that girl <laughs> uh there's a close-up of his face and then pinhead in the pillar in the background uh and they use it for that and uh later later at the end of the movie they do a close-up on on Pinhead mocking Elliot Spencer while Joey's in focus as well in the background, all insta-bondaged up, hanging in the, the bunker. So, like, those I'm are the three that I noticed. Watch those. But, uh, yeah. It's this, this thing, like, Rob Zombie talked about how much he wanted to do it and did do it in House of a Thousand Corpses. And, you know, it's, it's a real common – I'd say the most common trope in horror for it is to foreground face of a protagonist character, background threatening horror thing. Both ah, in tight okay. focus is where you're most likely to see it, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, it's it, it, it's a bit of geekery, and I kind of love it, and I love that people do it. But at the same time, it's just also super distracting because it's like it's totally a thing you do because you can do it, not because it actually necessarily makes the film better. You know, you're just like, oh, I want to do a fucking split focus shot, yeah. You know, in 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 that in that same vein, they uh, they broke the 180 degree rule at some point. Um, so if, uh, if you're listening to this and you're not sure what a 180 degree rule is, if you're, if you picture a shot where two characters are talking, you got one on the left, one on the right, you, you can't, you, you can't put the camera on the other side of them. You, you can do 180 degrees of like twirl from like, you know, from the back of one to the back of the other, but you can't break that line because what happens is that the characters flip where they are on the screen so I mean, like the best example I could give this. There, there was a shot like that in The Shining in the bed, like the red bathroom. And if you don't remember that, this is exactly what they did to make uh, Gollum talk to himself in Lord of the Rings, where they they just like flip the frame, and that's that's called breaking the hundred eighty degree rule. And they do that at some random point when um, when JP is ranting, and you know the shot is, is flipped, and this is like you know a thing 
that, that directors would do to disorient you, but there's usually a reason for it, and there was no reason for it, and it's such an element, it's, it's like literally a film school 101 thing. I learned about this in film 101 in college, so it couldn't have been an accident. <laughs> Um, so it must have been on purpose, but there was there was no point to it. There was there was, it was there you know in the in the scene there was no there was no reason to just like sort of shake reality up like that. Yeah, it just comes um, off so, yeah, as bad really editing. Distracting. Yeah, exactly. I, I exactly. find I find the 180 degree rule. It's hard to convey in words. Like like it's it's not it's not hard to convey like with actual examples, but it's kind of hard to describe. The best the best way I can think to try and make it clearer like what the idea is if you imagine the camera is being held by an actual person which you know whatever there's an actual cameraman imagine you've got three people standing in a triangle facing each other uh having a conversation and the cameraman is one of those people and the other two people are the other two points of the triangle so those other two people are more or less facing each other directly so when you look to the person on the left as you're the cameraman you see them looking to the right and you look at the person on the right you see them looking to the left and so like you move the camera back and forth you can see them looking at the angle they should be and yeah the 180 degree rule is like if one of those people while off camera turned around and faced the other way and then you took a shot of them it was like what the fuck's going on because it feels like yeah it feels like they're facing the wrong way for no apparent reason and I feel like see, even that a, doesn't feel like a good. It, it's it's really a visual thing. We should make a blog post about it. Yeah, I was gonna say there's gonna be pictures stolen from Wikipedia in the blog post for this yeah. episode, so that you could figure out what the hell we were just talking about <laughs> for ten minutes. <laughs> but yeah, so Terry pulls out the box, and yes, and and and, and it's dirty, and it's it's dirty, it's dirty because it was pulled off the statue because it was embedded in the statue along with uh, Pinhead's face, apparently the Pillar of Souls. Um. Speaking of the statue, we then go back to the the club where JP is looking at, uh, looking at the statue that he's got now up in his penthouse uh, of the boiler room, and uh, there's a hole, uh, and he puts his arm in it. There's a hole in the statue, and he just reaches his arm right in. This is that moment of horror movie dumb. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, don't put your hand in there. Don't put your hand in there. What, what, What are you thinking? This is a spooky statue I picked up from a creepy guy. Flashlight? Nah. Let me just shove my hand in there. And what could there possibly be in there? A rat. Like, this is... they. You'd think they'd do something a little more, like, extreme, but no, it's just well, a rat. I, I, I think it's supposed to be the fake out. You're supposed to be like, don't do that, and then you get the payoff for being, don't do that, because something bad happens. But also, it turns out not to be, like, unbridled uncomprehensible horror, but rather just a fucking rat. So it's like you get the spook, you get the, Oh no, you get the comeuppance for doing the dumb thing, but you also get a sort of pace yourself. So it's not like his arm gets chopped off end of that character. So, and you get the call back to Hellraiser one. Yes. When uh, Frank uh, cuts the rat up. Yes. It's rats all the way down, man. Once again, uh, New York, 1991. <laughs> <laughs> I I think maybe that maybe the whole is supposed to be partly a figurative commentary on his like compulsively penetrative ways because J.P. Morgan is totally a sex hound. I think I think we can honestly say among his other troubles, he may just be a sex addict and he's untreated because who's going to tell J.P. that he's got to go see a, a therapist? But so the fact that he can't help himself but put his arm in the hole even <laughs> when he seems to sense that it's a bad idea, I think maybe that's a insight into the nature of his character. Um. This movie is so much smarter than I thought it was before I started talking. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, so he, he he gets blood on the statue. Uh, sucks it up. 
like, which sucks uh, it up yeah. boards in the mattress yeah. and so on pinhead's upside down face at this point even though he's right side up later on sucks up the blood through his statue mouth and this is so impressive to jp that he forgets that he's bleeding out of his hand because a rat just bit the fucking web of his thumb so that was a little bit weird too but maybe that's the power of of, of pinhead you know and he just goes he just does like a keanu style whoa yeah and um, then so, so we we also have the we have the scene where joey and terry break in uh with the lockpick you mentioned into the pyramid gallery and and joey terry farrell is wearing the worst high-waisted pants and floral blouse ensemble like, yeah ever. it's it, 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 it looks like she 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 went to a hospital and like stole a nurse's shirt and then forgot to change out of her pajamas. Yeah, it's 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 awful. Yeah. Uh but anyway, um, they, they they break into the gallery and like you mentioned Joey finds that uh the accounting for this is all terrible like Oh wait, wait, we forgot to uh we forgot to mention the the scene uh like after, you know, Joey and Terry have their, you know, like girls night. Um, you know, the next scene, like, you see, like, the kitchen burning, and Terry is standing there making breakfast, wearing what is clearly one of uh, Joey's shirts, and did they sleep together? Because I, it, like, everything about that scene implies that they slept together. I didn't get that feeling. I think that was just bad direction. <laughs> like, like I, I can see that read, but I totally did not get the idea that that was an intentional thing. I think it was just more like slumber party morning. Like and Terry's she, excited because kitchen virgin. Well, yeah, but she 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 does a lot of things to sort of say, oh, and by the way, I'm uh, probably uh, oversexed in various ways because of my terrible life. I mean, I felt like that was just like tying into that more with uh, with Terry's character than trying to be any sort of sexual reference to Terry and Joey uh, sharing space there. I think it might be like the directorial equivalent of all of the uh, double entendres coming out of Tobias and uh, Arrested Development. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I'm not giving enough credit for being under the covers a, a you know, subtle lesbian sex farce. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 that whole, yeah. And, and then, and Joey's like, oh, why, here, I'll, I'll clean up the kitchen. Why don't you just go watch cartoons? And Terry's like, yeah, because of course, let's infantilize me further by saying that I would just like unquestionably list the best thing you could possibly tell me is to go watch cartoons. I don't know. <laughs> so they're, uh, okay. So now it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, what is it? Terry and Joey PI and they're going to investigate the pyramid gallery, right? Yeah. So they break in, uh, and, uh, they find, well, no, that- first they're told, uh, Oh, the, the the guy, the old guy with the little dog is like, oh, you can't get in there. He's the. It's always closed. The owner's in Hawaii a month now. And and Terry's like, no, because my jerk not boyfriend totally came by the other day and bought a thing. He's like, oh, I live here. I see everything that happens. And he's wearing. Uh, is he blind? Because I, I think that like I see everything that happens. Line was supposed to be like you know just like a little ironic joke thing. Because he's wearing like because he's. He he looks like a little uncoordinated, and he's wearing you know dark glasses, and it's not particularly sunny. That's kind of sunny though. I think he was just a bad actor, and he <laughs> liked sunglasses. Uh, and he has this little dog who is really angry about something, and he's having to pull it away. See, if he was blind, why would he pull it, be pulling his dog? It doesn't. I don't know. Again, I I, I think the, the the blame for our disagreement here is solely on the people who made this film. And the dog was played by Peter Atkins. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so they break in. They find they find 
stuff from the Chenard Institute. They find drawings of the box and whatnot, but not until after Joey once a sent establishing why she's not getting anywhere in a career. They break into this thing. She sits down, starts going through files and like literally like two, three seconds into going through the first file. She pulls out of the first drawer. She opens. She says, ugh, this is going to take forever. <laughs> like she's got, she's already gotten bored after B and Eing. B and e, I should never say B and Eing. It just doesn't flow. She's already gotten bored after breaking into a gallery to investigate a super mysterious corpse murder from the other night, and she's like, "Oh, but I have to look at paper." Yeah, this is it, it, this is in fact just a cautionary tale about becoming a journalist with untreated ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> look at how bad things can get if you don't stick to it. Exactly. Um, Oh yeah, and then this is also the scene where they mention that like the gallery's a scam. It's all uh, you know, it's all stuff from asylums and, uh, and and so on. And I mean, I've been to like outsider art exhibits, and I I, I can sort of see where she's going with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so yeah, she breaks in. Okay, and then it's um, and then it's back to the bar, right? Yes, back to the club, back to uh. The- JP oh, and putting the moves on some some blonde lady like he, yeah JP's incredibly like precise prearranged seduction technique that's like it's it's got like all of the complexity of like a bank heist you know he he's got a nod at the bartender the bartender gives the pretty girl the rose that, that they've got you know previously and you know JP's a romantic because there's only one rose yeah yeah he's he's serious he only about prepared it. the one he's uh he's just got a long refractory period so it's like one a night period <laughs> um. Yeah, then, yeah, um, the, the rose in the in the ice box along with the uh, the vodka, and the bartender gives the rose to the girl, and then JP makes his way over, and 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 I don't even remember the actual lines, but basically is like, hey, uh, and she this this is the worst actress in the film, and that is saying something. Yeah, she, her just line deliveries are all just looted out. She's just like, great club, but with less inflection. And and much like every seduction scene we've seen in this film series so far, it takes place in about thirty seconds. Yep. Everybody was ready to go and just needed the word. This is this is how sex works in the Hellraiser series. Yeah. Um, and this is also the first time we get like aesthetically pleasing or at least moderately sexy intercourse. Uh, when it did JP and that uh, the young woman. Yeah. So so they go upstairs and 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 we 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 cut to them upstairs on JP's bed uh, having some sex. JP's smoking while they're fucking because yes. everybody's everybody smoking smokes. everywhere. Always. Uh, and yeah, I, I want to say, you know, I will say this for it. It was not further B-roll of Frank and Julia having sex. And for that, <laughs> I, I am incredibly thankful. I, they really, Peter Atkins, thank you for not writing in a flashback to that instead. This was much better. Uh, the one thing I want to note is that um, – there's like a a crucifixion pose uh, thing going through the movie, and like the first instance of it was JP during climax, like strikes yes. a crucifixion pose, yeah, throws which, his arms out. We're seeing him from the back, all all finishing his rutting. Yeah, and then cut, <laughs> and then cut, and then and then and then he's smoking on the bed, and she's uh, wearing a bathrobe or whatever, and wandering around in his 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 apartment looking at his stuff and saying, Oh, this, this is radical. Oh, this is, this just says it all. You know, it's, it's so dark. And, and, oh, and no, he's, he's polishing his steel, ca- not oh. steel toed, but steel capped 
boots. He's polishing, and I can't tell if he's unsatisfied with the reflection or with the level of polish because he's really going at it. Yeah, he's 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 he's. That's just the best thing he can think to do after sex, I guess, is try and get a shine on those boot tips. Uh, and she asks him uh, if he minds her talking about his stuff. And she's like, and he's, he's like, no. And she's like, well, because if you mind, you should say so. He's like, I don't mind. I just don't care. And she's like, what? Like I'm, or I, I don't, I don't mind. It's just not interesting. She's like, what? Am I like I'm not an interesting person? And she says this, and she is not an interesting person. <laughs> I mean, I feel bad if she is feeling sexually used, which is the the thrust of this conversation. But really, neither the character nor the actress is conveying anything. Like. No, of course not. He brought you up here for sex. That's what just happened. It's pretty funny though, because they they basically have an entire shitty relationship in about forty five seconds. Yeah, it's, it's very it's very rapid. And then and then uh, he accidentally murders her uh, by pissing her off so much that she shouts at him. And her shouting is the only time I believe any delivery she has in her entire role. When she's shouting, like I believe this is actually you know an angry person who's feeling pissed off and used. So like they should have just had her shout more in the film, I guess. That would have been great if like that the whole seduction she like had, you know, severe uh all of her lines delivered like David Lynch in Twin Peaks. <laughs> exactly. She she's got a she her her earpiece is turned down too far, she's hard of hearing. She's like, Oh, great club. Um But yeah, so then she gets she gets attacked by the statue. The statue fires out some hooks and picks her up. And Pinhead's face comes alive. And he had been peeking earlier after getting the rap blood on him. It woke him up enough that he was peeking during the sex, by the way. That's um, right. And his head drifted to the top of the statue. Yeah, somehow. I, th- I, th- I think they just kept moving the prop. Um, <laughs> flipped it. So he shoots That's a, right, cause it. Was, his head was upside yeah. down when it sucked. Yeah, I think they literally flipped the statue. It, it, was, it was conspicuously inconsistent throughout the opening of the film. Uh, well, he, that's because it's from you know another dimension and you know like fourth dimensional. Sure, movement. yes, yes, that's yeah. that's probably what it is. Uh, <laughs> so 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 he opens Binhead opens his statue mouth and he shoots a hook out at this girl after she's already being held up off the floor by a bunch of hooks that came out of the statue and he shoots a hook out of his mouth and it pulls back the skin on her head and then just degloves her entire body all in one go. So we've got we've got once again a degloved uh muscle and gristle body. So Colin And once again to, the uh the the it's a different actress that plays a uh, flayed club girl. That's actually it? the same actress <laughs> that's playing uh Terry. I, I guess they found, you know, a little more screen time for her. Yeah, well there you go. I mean, I'd want to. I'd want to have some screen time as as a degloved person in a Hellraiser movie. If I got a bit part, that'd be pretty sweet. Uh, and then, and then, and then the statue just eats her. Statue yeah, just like, eats her. Like literally, just like just like somebody eating a chili dog. Basically, it's it's the same sort of motion. Just like right in first some non-existent then, hole. Not even yep. the rat hole, because that's not where the rat hole was. Although maybe it moved when Pinhead moved. I don't know. There's no hole afterwards, so it just sort of yeah, like a conveyor belt into uh the the pillar and that's how and that's how pinhead gets his pins back did you notice he didn't have pins until that oh, scene right. he's he, i mean he's got the, the 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 grid of of flesh marks but there's no pins in his head until then he gets his pins back and and then he immediately goes into pinhead the philosopher salesman mode uh, yeah this is the most dialogue he's had in the previous two films combined <laughs> yeah he gets to give an actual set of speeches in this film mm-hmm. uh Oh, at one point, um, JP says, like, you know, that was evil, man. And Pinhead just says, you know, that word sounds so uncomfortable. It's like, you, that, that's such an uncomfortable word for you. And all I could think of was just the Big Lebowski scene. 
uh, where it's just like, you know, the word makes some men uncomfortable. <laughs> Vagina. <laughs> oh, we should, we should try cross-cutting that. That'd be, uh, <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. Oh, and this is where Pinhead, uh, so, so Pinhead starts philosophizing at JP and immediately going into a hard sell of, hey, come be my minion and, and get me the fuck of the statue. He's, he's using almost the exact same language that uh, yes. JP used to seduce the girl. Yes, yes, which JP, like, JP has this line where he's talking to the girl, he gives her the rose, the, the, the terrible blonde actress, he, he, he's given her the rose and, and she's sort of nagging herself. He's like, oh, yeah, I only give it the most beautiful. She's like, oh, don't talk like that. He's like, no, no, you're really amazing. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm not so great. He's like, hey, no, no, if you have a quality, you should be proud of it. You should let it define you. And once again, way too brief foreshadowing because then like five <laughs> minutes later, Pinhead knocks that out. Pinhead should have like dropped that in the third act as a big whammy uh, if I was writing the film. But instead, no, but- five minutes later, he's quoting it right back at J.P., I mean, maybe it's just that they know exactly how much attention people are paying to the dialogue, which is just very, very little. And they realize that if you don't get the foreshadowing payoff, like in about a minute, they're going to forget. Maybe. I just, I, just I, I want, I want, I want to hire aspirations in my, my hacky uh, horror film writing. <laughs> it's just the way I am. I want, I want structural integrity, you know? But yeah, so Pinhead quotes basically, you know, you know don't, you know, you know the quality to find you basically hey jp you're you're uh you're kind of a violent jerk but that's okay you can own that you know he's trying to say it's okay to embrace your own bad stuff and he calls out the killing your parents thing and so there's a couple things i want to i i want to i want to talk about a couple possible bits of how things are working here cuz pinhead quotes jp's words right back at him and mm-hmm. he also confronts jp with the fact that he killed his parents uh, so there's either either of a couple things going on here. Either Pinhead can like basically read minds or read memories, or Pinhead does a lot of recon about everybody he might run into, or like has access to like the hell version of Wikipedia in that statue. And I don't know which I prefer: the idea that he's basically just got a direct line to your soul, which would be appropriate enough, I guess, in the theme, or if he's just like he's the Batman of being a hell villain like he's prepared he knows dossiers he's the he's the guy who's running for office and he's never forgets anybody's name whose hand he's shaked you know sort of thing yeah that was uh, maybe just he's just got, got like the chain slowly just like went through the entire club and they act as you know receivers and he can hear everything going oh, on and oh, it's a network maybe jp yeah. just told somebody that he killed his parents at one point because that that's what you do after you kill yeah. them you I, tell somebody he probably told the barman he, he told peter atkins that guy knows everything well they were discussing the script he's like you know you know what we should work in i should have killed my parents and he's like very good sir can i get you another manhattan at red bull um <laughs> Peter Atkins had seen Batman like two weeks prior. It's like, hmm, dead parents. That's a, that's a good angle. And and yeah, so apparently they they had a very large insurance policy, and and JP was good enough to get away with killing both of them, collecting the money, opening a club and a restaurant, and running it successfully there you in go. an incredibly plausible series of events. Well, he doesn't even need to run it successfully. If there was enough money, he could just be running it really unsuccessfully, but he's fine for a few years. So. That's true. Uh, they also don't say when he killed his parents. Like, like it, it could be that he killed his parents with that gun like a year ago, or it could be he killed his parents with that that so gun. Right, Desert he says Eagle, that's like the same gun yes. you used to kill your parents, because that's what you do with the murder yes, weapon. Exactly, you keep it. Uh, 
Yeah. And, See, and, this oh. is how I know this takes place in the Law and Order universe. Because <laughs> he's just dumb enough to get caught with something like that. <laughs> Pinhead beat just beat like Briscoe and Curtis to it by ten minutes. You know, I wanna I wanna I forward another uh potential uh mythos uh, angle on pinhead using JP's words. Like it, it could be neither mind reading uh, nor recon. It could be that the let it quality that defines you embrace it thing. Uh, maybe there's basically a book of the gash. There's, there's sort of a book of proverbs of uh, the hell dimension or of the Leviathan dimension and pinhead knows it because, well, you know, he's, he's a Jesuit essentially of, of this, you know, he's well studied obviously, uh, but then other people out in the world uh, end up saying these things because they've got that sort of fatalistic connection to an eventual encounter with this dimension or this this figure. And so they're, they're unknowingly basically speaking from the book. They're unknowing prophets of, of all this. They're speaking in tongues, essentially. Or it could be one of those things where, you know, when somebody says, you know, you can see the writing on the wall and has no idea it's from the Bible. It could be just, you know, the, the, the Cenobites have been around for so long oh. that, like, stuff from them has just entered, you know, common uh, common speech. That could be sort of like a, a, a forgotten actual terrestrial uh, book, essentially. Yeah. It is That is an equally plausible scenario to JP's origin. I so. can buy that, yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. So there's that. And, and JP encounters pinhead and pinhead comes alive and there's some more boring bullshit that happens there. But, uh, but that's a key thing. JP has now had that interaction with pinhead. And, yeah. And pinhead's like, you there's a place at my right hand, right for, hand you. for you. Yes. Which again, with the sort of getting the, the biblical stuff going on. Um, uh, and so we go back to, so Joey gets the, the VCR. She gets the tape that, of Kirsty. This is, this is Kirsty's appearance. That, that tape is the size of a pizza box. I, I that that was not a VCR tape. I don't even think oh, that was yeah. a Betamax tape. Whatever. That yeah, was there, huge. There, there was there was an older, bigger format, if I remember yeah. right, which it shouldn't have been in '92, but uh, but whatever. Oh no, you know what they did? I I actually am now remembering from like taking a some sort of course. There was there was a specific format that they used for like um, for video production. There was like a tape format. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, she, she, the, the point is she gets a VCR. She, she, she gets a tape. Kirsty Cotton tape. Kirsty Cotton's uh, interviews from the Chouinard Institute, which this is amazing because it, it, it's Ashley Lawrence again as Kirsty appearing in this film only as a person on some videotape archives. And this could very well have been archival footage from the first couple of films being reused to pad for time. But I'm pretty sure they shot this fresh. Like this wasn't in the first couple of films and I think they just specifically shot yeah. these scenes to fill in some exposition. You think they paid her less because she appeared so blurry? I don't know. I'm not sure if you can do that or not. I'm um, sure she was happy also, to get paid at all, though. That's true. When was this footage shot? Uh, that's what confused me, because it's implied that she was only in the hospital for a very short period of time in the second movie, but this takes place in a completely different room during like an interview that could easily have been conducted in the... Like it takes place in this like giant sprawling like you know rehearsal room, um, and like at a very small desk. Yeah. And you know she's doing lots of yelling and gesticulating and walking around. It's like you, could, I, I have no idea when that would have taken place. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we could just shoehorn it in the timeline of Hellraiser two by saying, oh, well, it was between one scene and another and whatever. But yeah, I don't know what that time would have been. Presumably, she had some downtime. So let's let's assume it fit. But yeah, I was I had the same thought. I was like, when did this even happen? That was such a, a, a 
a short timeline in the second film. So right. I don't know. Maybe maybe she had, maybe she had a relapse after mm. happily walking off at the end of the the second film. She then uh, turned out not to be totally de-traumatized magically from all that shit that just happened, and she uh, got checked back in. And this is actually one of the one of the first scenes where they start you know immediately compute, confusing like concrete of figurative speech because she says demons live in the box, but they you know you know she did, they they don't live in there, but she states it in such a way that you know. It, it it makes it sound like she actually thinks that, and then she corrects herself, and yeah, it's it's just sloppy writing. Yeah, but what do you um, do? Uh, yeah. Oh, and, but but the, the, the thing that I thought the most interesting thing about Joey watching this this archival footage of Kirsty ranting about the box is that Kirsty is sort of uh, recreating the finger movements she used to open the box when she's That's talking right. about the box, and and we get a shot of Joey's thumbs basically mimic the same thing. So maybe opening the box. Uh, knowledge about the box maybe it's kind of a brain virus like you can pass it on as easily as sort of like conveying the idea of it and that's how someone learns to open the box is yeah and i think doesn't somebody mention that like the box wants you to solve it or the box wants you to open it that seems to be a line like that yeah oh and and that was a theme that sort of showed up in the first couple too and that i guess sort of goes back to maybe the idea of the fatalistic you know you were meant to encounter this thing and the idea that the box finds its way to people it's supposed to like we talked about the hobo dragon people were making the worst decisions (laughs) around it that it can and it picks them seriously the the hobo dragon when he's selling the pillar to JP at the beginning of the film, you know he's like, uh, uh, JP's like, oh, is it yours? And he's like, no, it's yours. You know, and oh, again with that office. same sort of yeah. But yeah, so we've got that. Uh, oh God, and then and then, and that was another scene with the uh, the, the the split focus. I think uh, was in there. That that was the one with Terry. Uh, so Terry's sitting at home. Uh, at home at Joey's apartment where she lives That's now. That's right. And, reading, uh, uh, did, did, you, did you notice what was weird about that? She's reading this book called like Great Battles of World War One or something. Oh, 20th Century Battles. 20th Century Battles. But the title of the book is on the back cover because that's the angle that she's shot from. Yeah. Did you notice that? I, the, I did not notice that, to, but that They, totally they must have now. printed up like a fake <laughs> cover to put it on there just to shoot it from that angle because books aren't printed like that. Yep. But they had, um, yeah. But they had that, to set that, it up that way because then they followed up with a split focus shot that had uh, Terry on the, yeah. left of the box on the right. So they, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Maybe the book's in Hebrew. Maybe. That's it. This is actually a, a subtle allegory about the uh, diaspora. Diaspora. <laughs> um. Ah, oh, God. Oh, but so, 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 so Terry goes to open the box. She's like, oh, wow, uh, Joey must have polished you up. She's even weirder than I am or whatever. And, and she goes to open the box and she's going to do it and it's going to be bad. But then the phone rings and it's JP saying, hey, you should uh, come over and we'll make up. And uh, Terry's like, no. And she managed to, we're proud of her. She's strong. She's, she's obviously upset and shaken, but she hangs up on him and she's like, no, I won't go back to you because you're terrible for me. And I have a wonderful life now in this condo that I live in. Uh, yeah. And then, and then the, he's just basically like, come on. She's like, okay. No, 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 no. What happens oh, no? is she hangs up on him and you're like, yeah, I guess. Good job, Terry, with an eye. And, uh, and then and the phone rings again and she thinks That's of him. Right. So she hits the button on the answering machine to make it go to message. And it turns out it's cameraman doc, doc. friend with the Lemmy mustache being, hey, I guess sounds like you got that, jib, that job in uh, Monterey. I guess you'll have to sell me that condo after all ha 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 which terry takes to mean oh my god she's gonna sell the condo i'll have to move out of the condo i'd better go back to jp right now 
is the clear intent of that because then she shows up at the club and it's yeah uh, that's right that's right and just more bad decisions yep and um, I'm actually by, looking at a map of uh, where Monterey is, and it's 200 miles south of Sacramento. Yeah, it's, this is. Oh no, it's actually just uh, slightly south of San Jose. So I mean, I guess there's a lot of news going on there. I guess that she that she's going from like being a journalist in New York to being a journalist in a town south of San Jose. Well, maybe it's a maybe it's a junior anchor job. Maybe they they. They saw her uh, sarcastic. It, 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 you know, it's like a, it's a sarcastic news network. They're trying to find the right person, and they they got her footage from the ER where she didn't even finish her bit with a straight face, and actually called her production team assholes That's on camera. Right. They saw that like this is this is what we're looking here for. This is our new junior anchor. She's the most sarcastic, unlikable person I've ever seen. She'd be perfect, and so they give her a job down in uh, Onion Monterey or something. Yep. That's probably what was going on. That's I think we solved the puzzle. Uh, which and means then, now the and then um, yeah, Terry says like when she hears about the job in Monterey, she's like, "You liar!" And I don't remember an establishing uh, an establishing conversation for 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 Joey to have lied about something. Yeah, yeah there was that, no. That all I can figure is Terry is like clearly Joey saying I can stay here was a lie because Joey is going to move to Monterey and sell her condo to the cameraman and that will all happen in the next 24 hours probably. And she probably knew that was going to happen, which is why the guy, yeah, it's just, it doesn't make sense, but I mean, you yeah, can, she either like grossly overestimated how long Joey was letting her stay there for, or doesn't understand what, what moving involves. Yeah. And like, it's, it's a betrayal not to do full disclosure that by the way, I'm eventually going to sell my condo. If I can get a job somewhere that's not here, you know, so, uh, and the whole thing is stupid. That's Maybe Joey's just aware of how shitty of a journalist she is that she wasn't even expecting to get this job. That's the, I can buy that too. Eighty miles south of San Jose. Uh, yeah. yeah. So then, uh, so yeah. So then, uh, so then Terry ends up at uh, JP's apartmenty thing at the boiler room, where he is just being so suspicious. He's being like equally suspicious as Chenard was in the previous movie. Where he's like, yes, yes, the apartment, not the hospital. This It's like an equal amount of like maybe just tone it down a bit if you're trying to get away with something. I think what's going on here is he's auditioning. Like Pinhead's told him that he could have the job and he kind of needs to show off because he does a couple of bad horror movie one-liners. Like he's talking about the, the girl who's who, who got his dead and got sucked in the pillar because Terry comes in and she sees the pillar and she's like, uh, uh, it looks different than last time I saw it. And he's like, oh yeah, I've had this girl uh, doing a little work on it. She put her heart and soul into it. Uh, and he's like, and Terry's like, a, a girl, huh? Well, and he's like, no, no, it's it's not like that, baby. Now that you're back, it's like she doesn't even exist. And it's like, he's like, hey, I can do snappy one-liners. I yeah, it's just, like, I'm just, just, just like waiting for the Just give me the, the job, scene. Mr. Pinhead. Exactly. It's just, I mean, it's, it's just like waiting for the scene where like the phone rings and he picks it up. He's like, Terry, oh, she's a little tied up right now. And there's a pan to her like tied to a chair. It was like that, that, that's, that's about as obvious as that was. Yep. Uh, um, and then there's another dream sequence, but it's boring. That's got the transition with the bad blue screen that we talked there, there about. Was, yeah, it was a trench scene, but there was one thing about it in that, you know, just, just like, you know, people dying in World War One in the trenches. But at some point, like an arm flies out and hits somebody on the head. <laughs> and I understand it was supposed to be like creepy and scary, but it, it really wasn't. And it just reminded me of um, 
future, the first Futurama movie, Bender's Big Score, when they find like Professor Farnsworth's hand, and Zoidberg's like, "I was in the dumpster when a hand flies out and hits me on the tuchus." <laughs> it, was, it, it was it was like that. Just it's like, oh, flomp flomp arm. There's also a baby um, crying sound during the bad blue screen right. transition. Always with the babies. There's also a baby in goth gear with some scissors near it in that's the right. uh, in the bad art in the club. That whole club was decorated by like stuff found on Regretsy. I think that's what happened. They went to Regretsy, they searched for goth, they bought everything they could find, they sent in a time capsule back to 1992, and that's how you got the decor for the boiler room. That eventually comes to life. Yes, yes. uh, All the art comes to life and starts being creepy when Pinhead's ready to get the show going. But um, during the during the dream sequence, uh, Spencer appears to Joey and he's like, "You have to help me," but doesn't indicate how, which is you know another recurring thread of the films in that. You know, nobody really has any ideas how to do anything, but they know they need to get it done. It's like, I have to solve this box somehow. It's like, you have to get me out of here, but you figure it out. I I, I don't have any details for you. Yeah, Spencer also shows up, Spencer being the guy, I I don't know that we even need to reiterate this. For some reason, I feel like I have to. Spencer is the guy who becomes Pinhead. He was the World War I dude from Hellraiser 2, specifically, is the first time we saw that. He he also shows up... uh, on the video monitor when she's watching the Kirsty tape. And then That's he also right. shows up on her snowy TV screen after that dream sequence. So like, he's all about sending the signals, I guess. But, but back to the club where you were saying like, like JP was being the creepiest dude to Terry and he's trying to get over to the statue so that she can get eaten by the statue. And he just needs to get her within like two feet of the statue seems to be the whole thing here, but he has like no moves. He's like, Hey, come hug me right here for no reason. And she's like, I don't know. Cause she's like, Oh, you just want to fuck me. And he's like, well, we got to get out of the way. He's like, yeah, I don't know. And so she doesn't, he could have just been like, Hey, this is, you know, just like, Pretend to be enthusiastic for a moment. I was like, hey, yeah, the statue. No, you, sh- you got to come see this thing. I've just found the neatest little detail on this. It's awesome. She walks over, gets <laughs> eaten. Problem solved. But JP's terrible. He's terrible at this stuff. So, There's so- actually um, a, a line in there while they were talking, which uh, just, just shows more like Terry's being unable to understand how human beings function, where she was just, she's like talking about how, you know, uh, you know she just met Joey. Now she's moving. She's like, I, I must have I freaked her out or something. I must have done it's something like, wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's like, well, you did something so bad that uh, she got a job in Monterey. <laughs> That's how badly you fucked up. I mean, I... I, I, I I, I, I've made some bad moves in my life. One time, a guy I knew uh, you know, took a full-time instead of a part-time shift because, because I was so impolitic in a discussion we had. But you know, I've, never, I've never actually gotten someone a job in Monterey. So, <sighs> and, you know, It would make sense like, if it had been like Joe would be like, yeah, Sarah, you can't stay here. I got you a job in Monterey. But it was like a completely unrelated person leaving a phone message. Yeah. I just I, – I, 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 Real talk here for a second. I just I gotta say, I don't think this is a very good movie. No, I, I just I just I had to. It's been dwelling on me. I want to get off my chest. I don't think it's a very good movie. No, um, but yeah. So JP's trying to get. She's trying to get, and he's like, "No, you have to come hug me." Because she's sitting on the bed, like, "Hey, I really want to fuck you, but I'm not fucking you. So you gotta come over to me instead of me going over to you. I'm gonna stand right near this creepy statue and make you come." 20 feet across the room and hug me. And, and then he says, come to daddy. That's and right. And he licks his lips. And I'm thinking, did Pinhead show him Frank's audition tape and say like, <laughs> here's a guy, take some notes, you know, here's, there's some, if you got nothing, you can work with this, you know? Maybe he's like, maybe he's like his like seduction coach. He's just like, just use this line. This is like, this is <laughs> yeah. the primo line. Come this to is, daddy. You it's love it. Weird transferring of Cyrano to Bergiac. It's that's uh yeah. I've seen this work once. <laughs> 
So then, so then, also, um, I just I just want to mention that. Um, so the um, you, you mentioned that before that like Terry's got like you know all she's generally dressed like you know very gothed out, but during this scene she looks like she stepped out of a T Rex video. She looks like straight up like seventies glam rock. She's got like this big old you know, denim like, bell bell bottoms. Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of hanging sleeveless. Like a, yeah, just not at all goth or metal or anything resembling. But everybody in the boiler room is is like there's, you know, there's people like dressed in their like you know swinging sixties and just all sorts of different different stuff, and they're all going to see Armored Saint. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very eclectic. You know what it is? It's it wasn't going to be the boiler room, but someone else. There was a melting pot fondue franchise that moved in across <laughs> the street, and so he couldn't name it the melting pot, which is what he wanted to do to represent the holistic aesthetic he was going for so he had to go with the boiler room that's what happened so or also she's she's in wildly different clothing because she actually is eliza dushku in the role of a lifetime as a prequel to dollhouse where she has changed into bell-bottom broken person in this scene Ah. so there you go i think uh, it's all coming together (laughs) but anyway so that all goes to hell and and he jp tries to throw her into the statue and she manages to uh that, that Punch him the, with the, the 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 knuckles. She's got the brass knuckles, like yeah. hidden in her crotch or something. The, the weird thing is, like it, you you think that he's going to like sexually assault her because he he grabs her by like you know the uh, the what do, what do you call it the the pants like the top of her pants, and then you think he's going to try to rip them off, but all he does is just like start dragging her towards the statue. Like, did you forget the part where you're involved in this? Because I mean, what, what didn't Pinhead's like? It's like, well, you can you know you can screw them and I'll eat them. Like that's yeah. the deal. Like, did he forget? Did he forget that part? I think JP or- was just hungry for approval, and so he was trying to get Pinhead what he wanted. Nah. And wasn't thinking through. But but anyway, so so she manages to pull out some brass knuckles, clock him, knock him out. Then then Pinhead, who through all this tussle with her, has been just shouting like a ninny. <laughs> Suddenly, suddenly gets his composure again and goes back to being philosopher Pinhead and gives her the same sort of speech that he gave JP about how she can finally have dreams. So he knows she doesn't dream. She can have dreams. There's, there's two keys in this room. One is to the door that she was trying to unlock to get out of the club. The other one is laying bleeding on the floor. And so then she needs to get the JP's body to the statue. She somehow understands. I guess maybe she's put it together. He kept trying to get her to it. But then like the scene of her trying to get JP to the statue, she needs to move him like a foot and they really should have just done it twice as fast with yakety sacks over because it would have been more entertaining and less tedious it's just like it's like you can't ah and then finally pinhead kills him and and eats him and and i would love to have seen like an extended like 10 minute cut of her like trying to roll the body nope push the statue nope and just like eventually everything falls on each other um Yep. Also, Pinhead at some point mentions uh, he uses the phrase "unknown pleasures," which I liked because that's a Joy Division album. Ha ha. Mm. Uh, and then, oh, and this is when the club starts coming to life. Uh, was well, not quite yet. First, there's a pillar oh. deconstruction scene after he eats JP. That's and, right. Uh, and it's it, it's like it's a crumbling flesh. I I felt this was actually kind of underwhelming compared to Frank's regeneration scene in the first film. Like it really was. It's like it, it just it doesn't cohere as well. And then Pinhead standing there, and he's standing there in dramatic lighting, looking at Im- implicitly Terry off camera, and he's standing at sort of like a forty five degree angle in his leather outfit, like trench coat dress, and reaches out a hand towards her in sort of a style stylized formal fashion and it is nothing so much as neo in the matrix <laughs> like it's totally he should you could totally cut that against neo putting out a hand and 
pointed a couple fingers and it would look like a plausible fight scene introduction. I kind of want to do that now because it, it was just so weird. I, and he was like, hey, take my hand was the implication. But uh, right. And yeah, you didn't get to see him emerge or anything. It was, yeah, it was, it was just there. Yeah, the pillar should have like come off around him instead of just shots of bits of the pillar falling off and then sh- shots of flesh. First, it turned flesh colored. True. Like with another one of those like jittery, like fisheye zooms, it turned flesh colored. But the whole thing, like, like uh, it went from being uniformly gray to uniformly flesh colored instead of like, you know, actually uh, painted or something, which yeah. was. Yeah, there's. Uh, this- the whole movie that they really copped out on the special effects, like especially compared to the previous one. Yeah, I feel like I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I was not, I was not super thrilled, and that's another a disappointing direction for the the franchise to go in. That it felt like, yeah, we've got effects shot, but we don't have the same no. sense of love in them. I don't know. That's not the same sense of focus. So Joey has that. We cut back to Joey in her apartment, and there's she's in the white dress in her dream. So maybe this is sort of a dream mm-hmm. sequence. There's a radio, the old radio from Spencer's bunker at the start of Hellraiser Two. That's oh, I was going to say. I knew it was fucking somewhere that there was a there was a shortwave in somewhere in the movie, and I couldn't place it. And that's that. Yeah, it was that the was opening the of the radio. second one. Yeah, right. Um, and which was glowing until she opened the door. At which point it was no longer glowing. But again, maybe this was all sort of a dreamy thing. Is what's going on here. Uh, and then she ends up uh, going through the windows of her apartment into – on the other side of the windows now, there's, there's Spencer sitting in his bunker, frozen in Was that the box bunker self. or was that the, the cotton attic? Because it looked it like a bunker. combination of the two. Was well, it the, I think the it bunker was, have windows? I, I think it did because they sort of like – then there was lights of shaft coming through them when the Cenobite transformation that, happened after the box opening. Because I thought it looked like it was made of wood and the bunker was concrete, I think, right? I, 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 I won't I won't cop for the materials used to create it, but I really think it was supposed to be the bunker from the second film. It was straw. It was made of straw. Yeah. It was made of dreams. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so then so then she goes she goes in the bunker where Spencer's sitting there frozen in the process of opening the box, and she goes through a magical door that opens where light streams through and she walks through it into the dark trenches of World War One where mm-hmm. there's a bunch of dead corpses and it's silent and she sort of slowly Ookley makes her way through there, which gets echoed later on in the club after the horror show happens. And she meets Spencer and he explains that he's a ghost uh, who is in a limbo between heaven and hell. Uh, and what the hell is going on? Hell is exactly, exactly what's, what's going, going on. on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And they have an incredibly awkward handshake, which just sort of goes along with every other piece of just like, you know, non-confrontational interaction with like, you know, Julia and Larry, like, you know, having really awkward sex, the really <laughs> awkward hug between uh, Kirsty and Tiffany. Like, nobody knows how to properly interact with people in this entire series. Maybe they're all robots. They're Cylons. They just don't know it. Uh, oh, and so, so he, he gives, uh, yeah, he gives, ter- he gives Joey, Joey played by Terry, he gives her a rundown on the previous film to explain what's going on, that he used to be sort of a monster who worked for hell. He goes, monster though I was, I was bound by laws, even hell has its commandments. So the idea was like Hellraiser 1 and 2, Pinhead, was, you know, basically a card-carrying member of, you know, hell's hierarchy, uh, yeah, it's then, now like official. This is this. I think this is the first time it's officially hell. Hell, yeah, which I'm so disappointed by. But yeah. whatever, we'll run with it. 
Uh, but in any case, he's like basically what happened at the end of Hellraiser 2 when he got turned back into Spencer before the doctor sliced his throat open. Uh, that released him. But apparently it also released Pinhead, who was an aspect of him. And so now Pinhead in this film is in the pillar. And then once he gets out of the pillar, he's running around as basically a rogue demon instead of uh, a law abiding. He's now He's now chaotic evil instead of lawful evil lawful evil and and elliot wants to try and stop him which which this makes sense that he can now run around do crazy stuff because spencer's point is that before you know you had to open the box before someone could fuck with you uh but now pinhead just wants to go on a rampage and and so so spencer needs joey's help stopping pinhead from creating hell on earth i want to uh, here's nothing when when Spencer he's like this is my domain and it's just like a trench full of dead dudes it's like yet another person who is terrible at his job yes well I mean it's it's a limbo he's he's stuck in a place that's meaningful maybe that was that could have but been all dom- the dude like over the course of the flashbacks like eventually like his entire like command dies at his command oh uh, well you know World War One was pretty rough that, trench that's warfare. true I, I'm not going to blame him for being a bad commander per se uh but it would fit in with the fact that Chenard's a shitty doctor, Joey's a shitty journalist. Nobody's particularly good at what they're supposed to do. I guess. Maybe, maybe they're all dragged down by the, the darkness within them, except for Joey, who's just dragged down by being annoying. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Oh, so, so yes, after, after Joey has this interaction with Spencer in his limbo, we go back to the scene. And this is where we go back to the boiler room, and this is where it goes. things go off the hook. All the dark regretsy art starts coming alive and writhing a bit this is the hell on earth part yes and then and then there's an explosion and a guy gets blown off a balcony and everybody's screaming because wait there was an explosion which is fair and then because pinhead just sort of blew open a wall the wall from uh jp's room i guess and then he's standing there in dramatic lighting and i will grant you that blowing a guy off a balcony is a good way to make everybody upset but (laughs) after that what you've got is a club with an ostensibly gothy sort of theme Mm -hmm. uh and you've got a guy standing in dramatic, cool-looking, like body modification makeup, in an awesome outfit, uh, and all these people. Say, and he sort of stands there, and I kind of feel like people would think, "Wow, they really put on something special tonight," and they'd be waiting <laughs> for him. Like when he when he looks around and everybody's falling silent, they're staring at him in this dramatic lighting, and he says, "You know, shall we begin?" I think what everybody should be expecting at that point is the DJ to like put on some KMFDM and then everybody would go get dance party. And instead everybody just simultaneously knows that it's time to immediately start panicking and screaming and running away. And I feel like speaking of uh, Eliza Dushku, it actually just looks like a scene from Buffy where the, you know, once again, the, the, the the club gets trashed. Yeah. Yeah, The bronze gets trashed again. This time it's pinhead. Yep. So yeah, I don't know. It was was all, but, but, but then we get this montage and I, I created, like I said, I have a bolded list here. I'm just going (laughs) to run through all the individual things where they did. Here's a shot we could do. Here's a shot we could do this montage of terror in the club where let's see a chain flies at some guy and he catches it, which is like, ha ha. But then it retracts and it tears off his fingers in the process. So he's got spurting blood stumps from his fingers. And then a girl's drink floats out of her glass and momentarily takes the shape of laughing pinhead's head. And then it turns to an ice dagger and stabs her through the mouth to death. So, Hey, we got something going to someone's mouth. Oh that's, yes. That's, that's an important callback. Uh, the barbed wire, have we ever seen barbed wire in these films before? Anyway, it surrounds the bartender's face inexplicably and starts sort of tearing at his face. A hook tears back a bit of some lady's face. 
uh, the DJ. No, the hook, uh, the hook um, peels her throat open like female. No, 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 no. That's, that's a later. That's also on oh, the list. Was this, this was just some lady lost some of her like ah. you know, forehead to a hook. And then the DJ gets impaled by several spinning CDs that float up and spin and then embed in his face. Uh, a, a hook comes out of nowhere and grabs some guy who looks like Yanni in a Hawaiian shirt and hauls him <laughs> up towards the ceiling. Uh, hooks fly out of several. Ron Jeremy. Uh, was he still that thin in 92? Maybe. Probably not. Uh, hooks fly out of several pockets of the pool table and grab various dudes' faces, including one dude's lip in a ridiculous bit of makeup where he's got a giant lip immediately somehow. Uh, a woman gets her throat opened up just like the female Cenobite. Uh, uh, a hook goes through some lady's like cheek or mouth and then through some other guys in front of her's chest. It was not really clear what was going on, but they were clearly both hit by the same chain or something. Uh, several doors slam shut throughout all this. And the third time, chains do the least weird things chains could possibly do, which is chain a set of double doors shut. It's like, that's actually, no, that's kind of a legit use of chains. Uh, Finally, I could use my degree. Seriously, it's like, <laughs> this is what I went to school for. Um, and then finally, after that, we get this long, lingering shot from the other side of those double doors, presumably of blood seeping slowly out behind the doors uh, while there's more screams and sort of chain whipping sounds. And that was, that was, that was a set piece. That was, that was a big scene yeah. for the film. But it was so jumbled. I mean, like, half of the, the deaths that they took place, like, so quickly and were shot from such a weird angle that you really didn't get to, 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 to really savor any of them. It was, yep. I, I think there, there, there's a couple, there was a couple of other uh, scenes like that that were just, like, so jumbled that they weren't really enjoyable, which I think is, like, contrary to the, you know, to the, to, to the, to the ideas, you know, put up in the previous two movies where it's just like, you know, slow lingering shots on yeah. like really creepy shit. And that's, I think that's like another, you know, like a Hollywood thing where there's like, no, we gotta, we gotta shoot this thing manically. It's like Americans don't have time. Yeah. Come on. Let's, let's MTV this. It's a music video. Let's yeah. It, it, I, I agree. And it really kind of suffers for it because it feels very sort of like, let's throw a bunch of shit at this instead of like, let's make this shot work. So, yeah. And after all that happens, uh, Joey wakes up from her presumed like limbo dream sequence with Spencer and her TV's on and there's a news broadcast uh, with an actual journalist uh, covering uh, this horror show situation at the club and there's ambulances all around and cops and they're pulling bodies out and whatnot and she's like oh shit I gotta go and she calls her cameraman she's like I need your help buddy meet me down at the boiler room there's a crazy big mess going on uh and so then she heads out to do that. And, and, and he's like, what channel is this on? She's like, are you watching? He's like, what channel? It's like 12, I think. And he turns to 12 and it's not on the TV. Uh, and then as, as she runs out of the apartment, we see that the TV in her apartment that was showing the broadcast, it wasn't even plugged in. Dun, dun, which, uh, dun. which I think they were really trying to convey unambiguously that this was a fake broadcast, which I like the idea that Pin was like, you know what I should do? I should make up a journalist having a successful career covering this accident. But was it Pinhead on. or was it Spencer? Because Spencer has so far been the only one to like control TVs, where he's just like constantly showing up on the TVs yeah, and on the radio and telling Joey to do stuff. I think it so was maybe- Pinhead, and here's why. I, I think I think Spencer would have just done what he normally does, which is show up as a face and say, "Joey, you've got to go to the boiler room. Pinhead's doing bad shit. Let's make this happen." Like I don't think he'd be like, "Hey, you should call your cameraman and get him killed." <laughs> that seems like much more of a pin, I think. Plus, I like the idea that he is jabbing her. He's like, "Hey, hey, look at this! Some guy actually does his job. Why don't you go down here and try and do your job as well, like this successful reporter who's on your TV?" <laughs> so I think I, I, that's I prefer to think it was that petty and it was Pinhead doing it. 
Also, there's no Channel 12 in New York City. Yeah, well, there is in Greensboro. Nah. Uh, was there Channel 12 in uh, in 1992, though? No, it was it was two, four, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, and then a bunch of other ones. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I, the, the TV's unplugged, and this pisses me off, because why would the TV need to be unplugged? Why would it be unplugged? Did Pinhead pointedly unplug it just because he knew Joey wouldn't notice it, but the viewer would? Her TV would maybe be plugged in. Maybe it was a pain in the ass on her way out. Oh, maybe. She was like, and I'll unplug your fucking TV. Moving Monterey, son of a goddamn, I don't even know. I don't watch TV. Um, <laughs> I, I want to see that scene. I want to see Terry trashing her apartment for five minutes. That's the scene I want to see. That's not, not doing a very movie. good job, yes. like rearranging the shoes in the closet. It's like now this box has two different shoes in it. She'd Bing, try and fuck back. up the kitchen, and she'd accidentally cook a really good meal, and then she's like, <laughs> "No, uh, I'm only closing the top lock." <laughs> so Joey goes to the club, and uh, it's there's nobody there. Apparently, no one has noticed this horrific murder spree. Uh, so she goes in the club and it's full of buys and grossness and chains, chains, chains. Kind of like the trenches, which uh, another, yes. you know, foreshadowing yes. five minutes later is the payoff. Yeah, exactly. You know, so she, she makes her way slowly through there and she's terrified, but keeping from screaming. And she sees, there, we, we get shots. Uh, again, here's a bunch of things. You know, there's a brain in a blender, not yet blended though, next to a, a head like on a pike. Um, there's guy a guy with pool balls in his mouth. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> someone shoved some balls in his mouth. Uh, there's a guy hanging. This is really quick. I just saw because I paused. But there's a guy sort of with his head up and his tongue out. And I think the idea is that he's hanging by a hook through his tongue. Um, so there's a bunch of little shots like that. And then Joey's making her way slowly through this kind of tedious scene full of dead bodies. Because we already know it's going to be bad. We saw, we saw it happening. Come on, film. Uh, and she turns a corner and she gives a big old scream after keeping real quiet. It looks sort of like, no! Uh, but it's just, all she's done is turn a corner and look down the stairs to the first floor where there's more dead bodies. So I don't understand I why that was, was... I thought there was only one floor of them. There's two. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't sell the and scream. And isn't the whole time she's walking around saying, oh, Doc, no, but none of the bodies are Not yet. Doc. No, 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 no. She, no, no. She's mostly saying nothing up until... She doesn't say anything about uh-huh. Doc. Until, I think she maybe called out to Doc once or twice. Oh, okay, yeah. But, uh, and then there's the guy who's holding his own severed head in his hands. Which is Doc. Okay, this is... this is that Doc? She makes her way down. There's another dumb thing where stage lights suddenly come on and point her... And then nothing happens, which is like, why did that happen? Uh, but this, so the door opens, a mysterious door, sort of a hellish door opens, and there's a room full of candles in it. Uh, you know, we have such lights to show you. <laughs> um, and, and some guy, there's some guy wrapped up in Christmas lights, and that gets a special little gasp out of her too, which, who is this guy, and why did that do it? But anyway, behind her in that room, we hear a noise, and she turns around, and there's a body sitting there, and there's a red light. You can't really see this, but there's a red light where the head should be that I think is the red recording light on the camera uh-huh. of Doc, the cameraman's camera. And then there's a head in the lap of that body. And the head, it's got to be Doc because it's got Lemmy's mustache. So it's got to be Doc got beheaded. A ca- his camera is sitting where his head should be. Uh, and, and she's like, oh, they- no, 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 no. And, but then, yeah, like that's not what yeah. he looks like later. So it's like Pinhead just hadn't finished yet. It's like, well, I'll cut your head off. But then I'll sew it back on, and then I'll shove your camera into it. I don't know. I don't this know. is a three-step process. It's, it takes a little bit. It's very confusing. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, and this this is when Pinhead comes in. Yeah. And um, what does what does he say to her that she replies, "I don't believe you." I don't he actually said, write it down. I, I, it was it. He says, 
there is a secret song at the center of the world, and its sound is like razors through flesh. And then, yeah, she's like, I don't believe you, really defiantly. It's like, that's what you don't believe? You don't believe that... Yeah. Nobody understands metaphors. Yeah. And like, then, no, it sounds like harps. Damn it. Then and he, then um he has a line uh, a little bit after that. Yeah. Where he uh what is it? Um I'll free you from your future and she yells back, free yourself from the past. And then he yells, This is not a debate. Once again, Pinhead <laughs> Do not no debate idea me, girl. De- no idea what a debate is. Yeah. Like it was like in the previous movie. It's like, no, when people like snap back at you with a witty comeback, that's not a debate. That's just a burn. <laughs> well, I think it's, I think to be fair, I think what he said is don't debate me or don't try to debate me, girl. So like he wasn't so much saying this is a debate as he's saying, uh, just tire your shit. Just shut up and get ready for dying. But, uh, but I kind of agree. He, like, he seems to over-engage. Like, he, doesn't, he doesn't self-moderate well uh, when faced with friction. Then he, ha- he has a line where she's like def- being defiant, and, and he has this line that starts as like a Hellraiser 3 sort of shitty horror movie line, but then manages to recover a little bit to more of a Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2 mythos of extremes of pleasure and pain line. Because he says, I'll enjoy making you bleed. And I'll enjoy making you enjoy it. And I was like, yeah, that's some yeah. twisted Barkery stuff, I guess. So, so I kind of liked yeah, that. I felt like, I, I felt like it, it recovered halfway through the line a bit. And uh, yeah, that, that, actually, I enjoyed that line. And then she, she gets away because, once again, Pinhead's weakness is that he can't really go any faster than a shamble. Yep. It's, it's that dress. It's, 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 a, um, it's basically a hobble skirt. You know, that thing yep. is not, uh, not going to work. So instead of chasing town. her, he uh, he animates the, the the city, you know, and you know, fire hydrant. You know, first the uh, first the power lines come down, and they're like hovering in the air like angry cobras. Yes, and she gets away from that, and the the um, what do you call it? <laughs> My the, actual note is cobra like sentient downed electric <laughs> wires. Then the um. Yeah, the the fire hydrant blows, and then so like electrified water is chasing her, <laughs> and then there's just like explosions everywhere. And this is this is really why Giuliani got voted in. It was to take care of stuff like this because this has nothing to do with Pinhead. Yeah, this is the, just infrastructure problems. <laughs> the gas main again. Hooks at one point when she's running through here. Hooks come out, come of, out a of the sewer, sewer grate, and they try and grab her, and they get her a little bit, but then they fail. It's like these are the one set of hooks that weren't doing their job. You had one job <laughs> <Yeah>. hooks. <laughs> yeah. They can't tell the difference between sweater and flesh. It's like, we're used to dealing with naked people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it would be more form fitting. Uh, uh, there's then, uh, red, the, a manhole tries to cut her head off, but doesn't try very hard. Uh, and then she ends up um, at a storefront of, of uh, turned on televisions. Yes. Like it's 1950. They're all turned on, but they're all tuned to a blue. Which is yeah, weird because why? W- earlier in the film we had snow, but these ones are tuned to blue. I don't know what was going on. Uh, Nobody turns anything off. The the, the yeah. thing that rotates the pillar in the art gallery was on. People just don't know how to conserve electricity. Um. Oh yeah, and then she sees herself uh, on the TV. Yes. And, oh no, and then that this is where the this is where we get the first new Cenobite, which is the Doc Cenobite. Who now um, has the camera like embedded into his skull, and he makes camera puns. Yeah, one of his eyes is now a camera lens, a, a zooming camera lens. And yeah, and and then she and she's like, oh no no no! And then some random douchebag has not noticed any of this. He's just walking <laughs> along, and he he sort of grabs her, and he's sort of hitting her. He's like, hey baby, it's okay. There's nothing to worry about. And then she runs past, and then uh, Brendan Fraser from Airheads. <laughs> oh, seriously, it really is. It, it's it's. 
weird how much it is. Uh, and then, and then the camera guy, uh, grabs the dude and cores out his head with his lens. He just shoots his lens through, through the guy's head, like the smaller alien mouth in aliens. And then he, then he looks at Joey and he says, ready for your close up, Joey. So we've you got official. Get a little more creative than just like knocking the guy's skull out. Although it did remind me of uh, the way uh, Shigar kills people in No Country for Old Men with the uh, the cow puncher oh, thing. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, you think they get a, like a little more creative? They than, like, like put, yeah, should like transferred the guy into a TV yeah. and then melted it or something. You know exactly. It's like it's like you know cameras are you know pretty like even like hell cameras. You know there's glass in there. It's plastic. They're pretty fragile. You don't generally hit people with <laughs> well, the front piece. To of be a fair, camera. it is now a hell camera. It's now like yeah. a pseudo Cenobite camera. Uh, but then the CD Cenobite, the DJ who got the CDs in him, he's now a Cenobite who has a terrible looking face with what looks like a CD player slot in the mouth. But and he's also, making robot noises. He's making robot noises, and he ejects a CD tray from his belly and pulls the CD out and chucks it at some dude and kills him with it like a shuriken. Yep. And then the barbed wire bartender bursts through a wall and belches fire at Joey, uh, and he's carrying around a goddamn cocktail shaker. Uh, <laughs> so we know that's the bartender. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think that's the only way they were going to sell it. Because, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a fat guy uh, blowing fire. Of course it's the bartender. Um, the police show up. A couple car cars come screaming down the street and skid to a stop, and like, like roadblock style, and they ignore Joey while she's screaming at him. And then the CD guy kills one of the cops. And the, Did you notice that he throws the CD lengthwise like yes, a frisbee, and it, and but it, it hits the guy vertically? I did notice that. I, it's, it, it's, maybe it's a clever throw. Maybe it's just bad editing. That's... Uh, I, I'm going to blame continuity. Yeah, because it was really conspicuous. Maybe he was supposed to throw it vertically, but he could just they just couldn't make it work. Maybe he couldn't move his arm that way in that costume. I don't know. Maybe he's really good, like a trick billiard player. Oh, where it's is. like you know, it just sort of shifts in midair, but only by ninety degrees because be. he's that good. Yeah, like the Millennium um, Falcon making its way through the second Death Star. Yeah, yeah. there you go. There we go. Uh, and then everything explodes. Yes. Well, the bartender chucks his cocktail shaker at the cop cars, and the cops say, shit, gasoline. So apparently it was gasoline in the cocktail shaker instead of something flammable like alcohol, which would have made sense. But the cops immediately recognizes gasoline, recognize that that's problematic, but then just stand there and wait for the guy to inexplicably belch fire at it and cause both cop cars to just explode. And you think this would be the perfect moment to have a scene that just calls back to, you know, the, the derelict melting in Hellraiser 1, uh, Frank's skin melting off in Hellraiser 2. But no, it's just an explosion. Nope, that's it's it. just an no explosion. Melting. And then we come back to Cat Cambot and he says, that's a wrap. End of scene. And, oh, God. What's, uh, this whole sequence, this, this whole sequence felt like, I don't know. I mean, it's proving that, that, that Pinhead Unleashed can really do a bunch of damage on Earth, I guess, beyond what he normally does, just torturing box havers. But, oh, it's... Clearly, Spencer was the brains of the operation. Yeah, Pinhead's just like, I don't know. Let's see how many GTA stars I can get. Um, CDs, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and then it's – so the next scene takes place in a church, and um, they couldn't actually get any church to let them film there. No. So it's not a real church. It's, you know, matte paintings and, you know, props, which yeah. would explain why this is a fancy, like, brick, old-style church with wooden chairs instead of pews. <laughs> I didn't even notice that shit. <laughs> 
I was so taken up by uh, everything else going on in this scene that I did not even notice that it didn't have pews. Yeah. And then fantastic. the priest, uh, the priest comes up to Joey, and it, this is—it's implied that this is a Catholic church, right? Oh yeah. So he comes up to her. She's like, "There's demons chasing me." He's like, "There's no such thing as demons. It's just yes, parables." Yeah. And I don't Catholics actually yeah, believe in demons. I, or? It depends on the Catholic you talk to. Um, I, I would not be at all surprised to have uh, any of the priests that I went to church at basically take the well. You know, religion is a complicated thing, and there's a lot of parable in there. But but certainly there's there's plenty of Catholics who would also take more of like, no, actually, the dogma is that you know uh, demons are actual real things. So. Uh, I don't find it on the face implausible. I mean, it could also be that he's just trying to calm her down because, you know, probably 99% of the people that come at him yelling at demons are just mentally ill yeah, and not actually being chased down, by yeah. demons. But I love, I love that this exchange is terrible because she's all gibbering and scared, like, oh, the demons are coming. And he's like, demons aren't real. They're fables. Metaphor. And he's very, very Irish Catholic, too. <laughs> and, then, and, and, she, and then she's... And then the door opens because like they're not real, they're fables, they're metaphors. And the door opens, and there's a money shot of Pinhead in dramatic lighting. And Joey turns and points, and all of a sudden she's gone from gibbering to being good old sarcastic jerk Joey again. And she's like, "Then what the fuck is that?" And it's like, "No, you were just freaking out. This is you don't just get to suddenly be super fucking cool. No, it's ah, oh god." Uh, Maybe it's like they just wrote like the line and then had to sort of like backwards. a calming thing because around him people don't generally freak out when they're very close to him. They're they're you know just generally like scared into submission. So maybe it's just like his calming aura. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's that's her inner strength is like sarcastic jerkiness. Like when she needs to really call on her reserves, she just thinks of the sort of most annoying shitty response she can to something. But then there's the, the, the stained glass blows up and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pinhead mind melts the priest's crucifix in his hand. And well, no, no. First he comes up to the altar and like really awkwardly knocks over the stuff on the altar. Like, yeah, like, he has a like temper he tantrum. He almost can't reach it, so he's got to like lean in and like just barely knocks the stuff off. And then he makes up a commandment. Yeah, what did, did he say? That? What did he say? Thou shalt not not bow down before graven fall. images. Yeah, or something like that. And then he melts the crucifix, and yeah. uh, he gives himself stigmata standing at the altar. He he mm-hmm. he pulls a couple pins out of his head. One and at not the just time. stigmata, yakitori stigmata. Yeah, because like he pulls the pins out of the head, and it turns out his pins are very long, and they've got like like yeah meat around Pieces them, of like squid on them. Yeah, it, it, I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be worms in his brain or actually just like loops of white matter that came off neatly. But he he pulls a pin out and shoves it through one palm and then mm-hmm. the other through the other. Gives himself stigmata, holds his his arms out in a Jesus pose, cocks his head to the right, and he's like, "I am the way." And it, and the candles to either side of him like flame up, making it look yes. like a giant H. And a little bit later, he feeds some of his like bloody nipple flesh to the force feeds it to the priest while saying, "This is my body. This is my blood." And, all- and you think they would have done something about that, but then the priest just sort of spits it out. Yeah, yeah, they don't take the scene anywhere, which is weird. But I want to say, like, when he when he throws the stuff off the altar, he looks really kind of pissed in, like, like he's throwing a tantrum. Uh, but yeah. then he's doing this. I want to know, is he actually like angry at or resentful of Jesus as some sort of oppositional force in what is now increasingly a straightforward Judeo-Christian hell concept? Or is he just being a Dickens? Like he knows the priest likes Jesus, so he's going to be sort of like running. He's doing some improv heresy. Just to I think that's what I, I think it's more that because uh, later on in 
Oh, I think it's the next film. You get you get like the classic, uh, you know, do I look like I care what God thinks line. Ah. So I think he was just trying to piss off the priest because I guess he got bored with Joey. I guess, yeah. And then Joey runs on and she ends up at a construction site for reasons that do not become clear until the very end of the film. Uh, and then it becomes clear that she's only there because they needed to set up that thing for the end of the film. It's not clear right. why she would go there. So she goes to this construction site is the latest place she runs to. She's trying to get back to her apartment because she wants to get back to her apartment where her window is. Cause Spencer said, you have to take him through your window. You came through your window before you need to take him through your window. And so she ends up at this construction site. Who knows why she's there. And then at some point about 30 seconds after she gets there, she seems to suddenly realize that it's not a useful place to be because suddenly she's like looking around like oh my god I'm at a construction site what the fuck and then the crappy centibites show up I don't know how to up. build anything yeah so the crappy centibites show up and it's and that's that's where Terry comes back and we see her for the first time as a Dreamer centibite. and Pistonhead yes the, uh, their names. yeah Pistonhead what the fuck is maybe I, it's because he liked fucking but like that, the thing in his head it's really not clear what it is yeah that's the thing like like i i finally came when i realized i wanted to say it was sort of a piston type thing i was like oh piston oh like pumping like fucking yeah because it's all about the fucking uh i think you're maybe right there but yeah it was really poorly communicated because like what did they come from where were they there well he was always like it's like Chekhov's run game off in the third act but yeah. Do you think it was think that's what it is? It was like I part think of it might motorcycle? have been one of his motorcycle parts because there was a lot of like, like it was not a lot, but there was like at least two or three lingering shots of him like hanging out on or near his motorcycle. So that that's I mean that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that would have embedded that thing in his head because yeah. you know we never see the transformations for either of them. Yeah, it was it was a little. And then, um, so Dreamer, because, you know, she can dream, uh, Terry turns into a Cenobite called Dreamer, and now she can dream, but, like, her thing is just smoking. Like, there's yeah. an earlier scene where she, where um, she asks, like, Joey, it's like, hey, do you have any cigarettes? And, like, she inexplicably has, like, a pack of cigarettes and a lighter open on an ashtray near her. She's like, I'm trying to quit. Not, clearly not very hard. Um, <laughs> well, Joey doesn't really try yeah. Very hard of anything we've established. Maybe this is just what she's claiming. That, that's, like, that, got- that's why Joey, that's, I think, that, there we go, that's why Joey was suddenly, like, bitchy and sarcastic instead of still gibbering about demons with a priest right after he said that they were fables. It's not that she had suddenly changed, she, she, she couldn't be bothered to try to stay afraid. She's like, <laughs> I was trying to be afraid, but, ah, ah. Yeah, I just I. So, I I'm, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. This, I this, think this, at this. some point she she actually tells Spencer I can't act. <laughs> I I I'm almost entirely sure that line comes up. I have it in my notes. She tells Spencer I can't act. Um, because I think he oh because he because Spencer wants her to like you know, uh, trick uh trick pinhead into going back through the possibly physical but possibly metaphorical window yeah and she's just like you know i can't act and the you know maybe that's the this is the one like prolonged foreshadowing payoff yeah is her being unable to remain scared <laughs> that's probably let's go with that but yeah so so you were saying with the smoking with uh with oh yeah Terry. so she's so she keeps poking at joey and like you hear like cigarettes sizzling but you can't see it and you can't you know, there's no visual aspect to it, and there's nothing about her, like, you know, reflects cigarette powers anyway. Like, she's got, like, a peeled-back face, like uh, F. Murray Abraham in Star Trek Insurrection, or uh, what's-his-face's mom in Brazil. Yeah, yeah, and sort of like she, a facelift yeah, face. Yeah, and then her neck is splayed open, kind of like female, but there's a bar going through it or something, which, I mean, I guess no, no. is supposed to be like a... Yeah, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a trach. 
Yeah, that's it. And she smokes yeah. through that. So she's smoking through that, which is like there if they had set up in the film earlier that she was like if she had emphysema or 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 had she was worried about like you know, throat cancer or something or anything maybe that would set the idea that you would need to do maybe that. If he, yeah. Maybe if she was just even the only character to smoke, but everybody in this movie is constantly smoking. Yeah. So like, it makes no sense that you would jump to, Oh, you know, it's like someone who's in their, you know, sixties and got throat cancer. And so now they have to smoke through the hole in their throat, like in Beetlejuice, but it was like, and her voice they just, doesn't change. Yeah. They did like they didn't. They, they really sort of slopped this up. I, yeah. I feel like it's not. I, I see why they're pseudo cenobites now. It's not. It's not a criticism of their credentials or of Pinhead's work. It's a self-aware condemnation of the film itself. It's uh, like, well, they're really pseudo cenobites. We really kind of phoned this one in. That's. I think maybe that's what's going on. And then yeah, yeah so it's like comes out and he says, "It's like, do you like them, Joey? They're handmade." And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's like you know. The box that Leviathan pulled out for Chenard, that thing really did a good job. You are not very good at this. <laughs> it's like, maybe we need like the industrial-made Cenobites and not like the small-batch artisanal Cenobites, because these things don't make sense and they're kind of falling apart. Yeah, well, and, and Pinhead even sort of disses them. You know, he says something like, you know, they're, they're, they're a pale shadow of my former... Uh, whatever you know, uh, you know they're over eager, but let them play. They'll have you know centuries to explore your pain and blah 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 blah. So he's like straight up saying, "Hey, yeah, I made these guys, and they're kind of shit. I miss Butterball. I miss the lady. <laughs> I miss Chatterer. But this is what I got now, and uh, we'll take our time because we're demons and it's hell and all that." So also JP slash Pistonhead, his one line as a Cenobite is, "Relax, baby. This is better than sex." So he's still into sex, I guess. But he also pulls out a police baton at one point and starts whacking her. And that's like the only thing either of them do that seems to actually cause her any serious harm. But why does he have a baton? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's a piston that he removed from the... I don't think it was, though, because it really looked like a a, a sort of thin police baton. Like, it looked like something I would have found in, like, the opening scene of Deus Ex, like, four or five (laughs) times. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, and then Cambot shows up and the CD guy and the bartender, but then Joy manages to open the box and she, it starts zapping all the Cenobites back to hell or to hell, I think this hell, is a new configuration for the box too because the, uh, the circle part comes out and yeah. becomes like a thick cylinder. Yeah, the cylinder comes up and it glows and it shoots all of them and sucks them into the box. And it's like, it's Ghostbusters. The scene was <laughs> fucking Ghostbusters. So you're going to take it back to the fire station and put it in the containment unit. Uh and Pinhead gets zapped too, along with the rest of them, but he sort of fights it for a bit before going in. Uh, and then there's 13 minutes left in the movie, but everything will be fine, I'm sure. Yeah, because I mean, they beat the bad guys. So there we go. 12 minutes of credits. That makes sense. So I just right? stopped watching at that point. I, I, I don't even know what happened. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he would have been better off, honestly. Um, so this is, yeah, we get another scene in Vietnam where. Uh, you know, Joey gets like a, a reunion with her dad in and the, was in it the his, sunny Greensboroian fields of Vietnam. Yeah. And he's just like, you know, it's like, you know, somebody mentioned that it was a reward, Joey. And she's just like, wait, how do you know my name? But only after she gives him the box. Yeah. Only after she gives him the box. And it's like, well, you know what? You're meeting your dad in what is possibly a memory or a time machine with the fact that he knows that you're his daughter and knows your name really that surprising yeah it really felt like a that, that was a big is, is, like he should be seriously what happened to you I'm, I'm a fucking dead ghost i'm talking to you and you're being weird about me knowing your name yeah it it, it does seem pretty strange 
And then he turns into Pinhead. Yeah. And he says, you oh, think your nighttime just... world is closed to me? Which I feel like he's got a lot to talk to uh, Freddy Krueger about. They should like compare notes on invading dreams. He, uh, he does not look particularly imposing in daylight. And actually, <laughs> I was reading production notes, and the people who made this movie agree. They had a hard time making him look scary in daylight. Yep. Because honestly, he just kind of looks like the guy who hangs outside the mall, always wearing uh, you know neo-glasses and a trench coat, regardless of the weather. Yep. Um, they should have just transferred, transformed the scene along with him when they did sort of the, the costume wipe. Probably would have yeah, would have been that hard to just like make it night all of a sudden. That yeah. would actually be kind of scary. Yep. Um. So yeah. Oh, and then oh, and then the scene does transform. It it, it goes back to the bunker, right? Yeah. And uh, Spencer and Pinhead have their you know have their standoff. Um, and it's 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 not it's not great. Um, there's, you know, like a really awkward green screen transition into it. Um, although there's a couple of shots of Pinhead that look like the, the, the origin where it's like really zooms into his mouth real close. And like, you see the gross teeth and the tongue and like him laughing. Um, and then something starts happening to Joey, but at no point did I figure out what's going on there. Like there's something gross and like she's chained up by her hands, and there's something like gross and visceral coming out of the ground, but I can't figure out what it yes, is. This was very confusing. Like, like, like the, the, she gets, she gets like insta bondaged up by pinhead, throwing some chains and leather straps at her. And so she's hanging there gagged while he's trying to talk Elliot into like, sort of, Hey, let's, let's be double pinheads. Let's uh, go on a real spree. And Elliot's trying to fight off the urge to be a terrible monster again. And so she's hanging there, and yeah, the, the the floor explodes, and out of it comes some sort of nasty, bloody, skinless red worm with teeth with a smaller worm with teeth mouth inside, and then thrusting up out of that somehow is some sort of black, ornate, eldritch torture device that then comes up and sort of floats in front of Joey's head and threatens her with metal claws and whatnot. And yeah, that, that, it, it's totally unclear what any of that is. And I, I, I didn't get it either. It was, it was, I, I don't know what the hell was supposed to be going on there. Like if it had been more audacious as sort of like, here's a picture of hell. Okay. But it was so minor. It was like, and now the mosquitoes of hell will annoy you. Yeah. It was, it seemed, it seemed, it seemed late, way too little for such a late climactic scene, uh, new bit to add to the movie. Yep. And then, um, you know, and then you get the one really, really good special effects shot of the movie where um, I think uh, Spencer's just like, yeah, all right, I'll merge with you. Um, I, I'm going to – I actually disagree with you about how good the special effects shot was. Really? But please, please lay it out. Okay, now now so, that I've established that I have a bad attitude, please continue. <laughs> so their heads kind of like linked together, and then I'm not sure if they used uh, claymation for it, or like they. I, I feel like what they did was that they matted that they used like some sort of a matting on the side of their head, and then just used claymation to make it look like their heads were like merging into each other because it was definitely a practical effect. There, it was a mixture of things. Okay, this is what this is what I saw here. They had initially sort of a lens distortion effect where they sort of just distorted the images of their just plain normally made up heads towards each other with a little drawn in lightning like like someone nudging with a, a blur tool in photoshop almost i thought that kind of looked like shit and then they did an actual practical yeah like some sort of complex latex contraption of their heads sort of merged together this weird headset put on both these actors standing there with their flesh sort of twisted together uh and that that looked okay. I mean, it looked a little bit uh, 
cheesy to it me, looked, but, but it looked it looked better than other ports, portions of the... It looked so ports. okay that in Thailand, they actually used it as the shot for the movie poster. <laughs> awesome. Well, and this sort of presages the uh, security guard twins in... Yeah, that's right. Uh, is it the next the, movie, maybe? Yeah, it's the next one. Yeah, mm-hmm. where they get sort of... They're, they're twins who become conjoined twins in a final format that's sort of like this middle of the shot. So I thought I thought that middle part with the actual practical effects was kind of cool. But then they went back to some more camera lens, let's just smoosh the images together with special effects thing. And I just, I think that looks like shit. I think it looks so terrible and fake. It that looks like this I'll is a point where is... they just did not have the technology to do what they wanted to do, but they did it anyway. Yeah, that, that part I'll agree with you. Um well, wow, it looks like this. This again, this Thai film poster. There, there's a bunch of scenes on it, and like half of them are, uh, half of them are just like oh, the special effects shot from the last scene. <laughs> um, yeah, and then they 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 merge, and uh, you know Joey's freaked out, and then because Pinhead's, you know, it looks like Pinhead took over, like, uh, and then um, where there's we? another like crappy special effects sort of switch where he quickly turns into Spencer. He's like, send me back to hell. And, and she does. Um, and and wait, she, she turns the box into the pointy yeah, configuration the this time. Yeah. The Orion configuration. Him with it yeah. And screams out, go to hell. And I was watching this movie with close captioning. And I know this is the last piece of dialogue in the film because it remained on the screen for the rest <laughs> of the film. <laughs> That's awesome. I, 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 at this point in the franchise, I am tired of people saying go to hell. Or variations on it. It's that's really, you've worn that one out, guys. You got to stop using that one. It's uh, it's no longer badass. Now it just sounds like people are cribbing off each other's notes. Yep. But yeah, I mean, there, there's been recycling since the sequel. Yeah. There's also there, there, there there's a line shortly before that in the scene when he's when Pinhead's trying to convince Elliot, uh, that he should uh, do this, and he says something like, "Why resist? You enjoy this." just as much as I. And I could think of nothing other than James Bond in uh, The Man with a Golden Gun, and specifically of of uh, Coogan and, and Bryden in the movie The Trip. Did you ever see that? Couple I of comedians? Oh, you should see it sometime. I'll, I'll uh, send you a link to this. Uh, we'll put it on the blog post maybe. But there's a scene in this. There are a couple of comedians who do this sort of fake documentary narrative where they're going around and eating very good food and uh, sort of riffing off each other. And so they riff back and forth at one point in the film uh, on a couple lines from uh, James Bond. We, uh, they start doing, you know, ordering martinis. I'll have a martini, shake it, not stir. And they're going back and forth and trying to one-up each other and arguing over their impressions. And at one point, one of them does uh, the, the bad guy from The Man with the Golden Gun saying, come, come, Mr. Bond. You derive just as much pleasure from killing as I do. And they go back and forth. And the, the why resist you enjoy this just as much as I is like, ah, uh, it was, it was, it just made me think about that and laugh. And that's my story about James Bond and comedians. Uh, um, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then she sends him back to hell. And uh, so she goes out to the construction site where there's apparently a bunch of unattended, but very deep, still wet, extremely wet uh, cement. cement. Yeah. And she plunges her whole hand in there, um, which I, I – and it didn't look like there was any water over there. And I, what, I, I'm not really sure what happens when you get, what, get, when you get cement on you and it dries. Well, I mean, so, you I, just end up with uh, uh, – most of the aggregate would come off and you just end up with uh, a really sort of thin gray layer of uh, cement dust probably. You wouldn't be good. in any trouble. You'd have to leave your, your hand in there for quite a while to – 
And um, yeah, so then the, the the final shot of the movie it's 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 an establishing shot for the sequel, but you don't know that when you're first watching this. And what you see is you see an office building, and it's you know the it's basically implied that you know there's like this abstract like golden statue that's slightly resembling the box, and then you see a couple of business guys go into this business building, and um, basically like the walls have this like like all of the walls and the ceiling and the floor have like a Lamarchand's box pattern, which would make sense if buildings grew out of the ground like trees. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I it's. I, I kind of like that uh, that sarcastic take on it, but uh, but actually, I liked the idea. I like the idea that maybe, obviously, there's something insidious about the box. Burying the box in the cement failed to hide the box. It just made its effect more subtle, but possibly at the same time amplified by whoever ended up building this place, because obviously it was doing some work on them. That's that that was what I took from it. That essentially, that that literally, as you say, it did sort of in a metaphysical sense grow out of the ground like a tree. She planted the seed of a whole building of Le Marchand. And also for the, the, the next uh, episode for Hellraiser Bloodlines, you just, we just have to pay attention to the fact the box does not reappear where it's left. Yeah, well, what do you do? <laughs> it moved, but it only moved like several feet. <laughs> vertically. It, it just drifted upwards. Yeah. Um, well, maybe maybe they maybe they broke up some of that cement and then reused it somewhere in a way that would make no sense at all. Well, you, when they you know redid the entire design to make sure that it fit the box pattern. Well, yeah. Okay. Here's here's what happened. Okay. This 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 building was built by uh, like mob labor, <laughs> and uh, they had to break up that patch of cement that she buried it in because they realized that wasn't actually where that needed to be. They break it up. They find <laughs> the box, but these are guys. They know who they're working for. They're like, uh, you know what? If somebody wanted this buried in cement, it's getting buried in cement. So instead of like getting curious and opening the box, they just they pour a pillar and they say, "Oh, I'll put it in there instead." Okay, that's now the boss will still be happy. Whatever's up with that box, um, uh, I'm I'm a loyal goomba. Whatever. Um, that's probably what happened. Yep, and that 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 is the end of Hellraiser Three: Hell on Earth. Cut to black, or as I like to call it, Hellraiser Three: Hello, Nerth. <laughs> Well, that then we roll credits. Let's have some fucking Motorhead. Yes, Motorhead playing their song for this movie called Hellraiser with the video featuring uh, Lemmy and Pinhead, I think, playing poker? <laughs> I gotta watch this. Um, we'll, D- we'll does either of them have the, the Ace of Spades? I don't remember. Oh, man. Um, we'll the have to only, check up on that. The only Motorhead video I can recall off the top of my head was one where <laughs> there's also a card playing scene and Lemmy throws down an ace of spades that says, fuck the man. <laughs> um, so, and it's not that video. Um, actually, I, I do not have a lot of trivia this time because uh, it looks like after Hellraiser 2, the kind of people that would do this sort of stop paying attention to it. Uh, there was one thing, though, the movie poster for it. Like, if you look at it, it's the exact same poster for Hellraiser 2. Yes. Um, so the story behind that was they made a really cool poster for this movie. I'll, I'll put it up on the blog. It's just a very close-up shot of uh, Pinhead, like, screaming violently. And it's a really cool poster. And uh, whoever deems these things appropriate was like nope and i i honestly i can't see why um especially like maybe like in 1972 yeah it's like have you seen 80s horror movie posters like exactly yeah 
so what they did was, I guess they either they ran out of time, or they were just like, uh, it's like, all right, you, you, they they made like they mocked up a new poster using the exact same image from the previous one. They just changed the background a bit. Yeah, with the argument, hey, we used it before. It's got to be okay. Yeah, that was exactly it. They're like, you, you can't not approve this one because you did yeah. before. That that's it. But yeah, I'll put the poster up on the uh, on the blog post because it's a really cool poster. Um. Yeah. Uh. I'm. I'm out of notes. I had a, uh, I, a couple things that I noticed looking through the credits. Uh. One is that music supervision by Carol Sue Baker got a huge text compared to like everything else in the middle of the credits. I don't know who Carol Sue Baker is or how she m- supervised that music, but apparently she did a hell of a job. I didn't mean to make a hell joke. Uh. There were did you some. That, uh, Terry Farrell also got billing over uh Doug Bradley. I did notice that. Which Why? is curious. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, nothing personal Terry, but I mean, I, I'm Doug, looking at her, he had a yeah, I mean, lot I'm, of lines in this movie. I'm looking at her uh, film oh, wait, thing. Wait, was, was it in order of appearance? I don't, I mean, it... No, it wouldn't have, eh. I don't think so. Because yeah. then, um, yeah, I don't remember who the first, I mean, either way, yeah, I'm like looking yeah. at her uh, filmography and I think this TV movie, TV movie, TV series, TV series, oh, she was in an uncredited role in Bonfire of the Vanities, TV movie, TV movie, TV series, TV series. Yeah, this was her first feature film, and she got top billing, which is pretty nuts. Go to Over Doug Bradley, who's been in two of these before, and <laughs> ostensibly the person people are going to the film to see. <laughs> well, but they're, like, not oh, going yeah. to, they're not going to see his name at the top of the credits. They don't care. So, have you? Do you remember a series called Paper Dolls from 1984? She, apparently no. she was that, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've never heard of it. So. Yeah. There were several yep. bands on the soundtrack that uh, I'd never heard of. Uh, the, I, I won't give the complete list. I'll just list the ones that I thought were funny names. I'm going to pull uh, it up while you're listing it. Uh, Soup Dragons. Uh, Ten Inch Men. Uh, Electric Love Hogs. And also The Chainsaw Kitten. And, of course, Armored Saints, as previously mentioned, featuring Gonzo the drummer. <laughs> Gonzo Sandoval. Also, merchandise uh, for the film was provided by Jigsaw Incorporated, which shows that Hellraiser is actually a conceptual prequel to the Saw films. Oh. Jigsaw was just limbering up before his actual torture murder spree by making Hellraiser merchandise. Oh, uh, it looks like Hellraiser, the song, was written by Ozzy Osbourne, Zach Wilde, and Lemmy. Wow, that's a fucking, that's uh, like the cream that- of hair metal. Well, yeah, they're the hair metal. They're just yeah. What band was Zach Wild from? Uh, totally spacing on it. I can't remember. One of them. He's from one of them. Zach Wild. He was in uh, best known for dot dot dot. Now I have to click. Oh, he was. Oh, Black Label Society, and he was in Aussie's band. Okay. Yeah. I'm. Just, oh, KMFDM were on the soundtrack. How about yep. that. Uh, yeah, I made a KMFDM joke in my notes before I realized that they were actually literally, you know, in the movie so i guess i was there right was, on and there was a song called baby universal performed by tin machine but music and lyrics by like david, david bowie. bowie yeah i i i have no idea what that one was the 90s were weird yep remember the spawn soundtrack not really i, I it was had, it was a bunch of 90s metal bands and 90s electronic artists like and each track was two of them featured together so huh. it was like Ministry and Butthole Surfers, Moby and Marilyn Manson. It was the whole soundtrack was like that. It was a very just sort of weird uh, amalgam. Weird. Yep. But that's that's the way they rolled at Image Comics. Yep. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> well, I think I think I'm all out of notes too. I think. Yeah, uh, we're and we're way over time. So, yeah. um, so we'll see you soon. Uh, we next uh, next time we'll cover Hellraiser Bloodlines, which is Hellraiser Four, and AKA the, Hellraiser and in space. One third Hellraiser yes. in space, one third Hellraiser in France, and one third scenes taking place in the modern day that really looked like they ran out of budget for space in France. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, so check us out, you know, we're, uh, we, we've got, we've got the Tumblr, we're, we're on iTunes, um. Go to iTunes, do the review thing, it's, or the rating thing, it's apparently a thing that helps, you know, do that, yeah, and then the world will know I, we exist. I've, I listen to many podcasts where they tell people to rate them up, but none of them explain why, and most of them mention that they're not even sure themselves, so we'll, we'll go with that, please, you know, rate us up, even though we don't know why. Uh, so yeah, Tumblr. Uh, oh, and the Facebook group. Uh, I noticed a few of you joined it. Um, you know, there's not a lot of action on there. Most of it's on the Tumblr, but you know. Uh, yeah, I see you next time. Have fun being. Uh, I, we need a tagline for this. Have fun. Oh, helling. Hell, we didn't play Invent a Cenobite either. Man, we we got to get our shit together next time. Uh, I've just I've just killed all of your cutting it off momentum here now Ooh. too pig's and head he's got a pig for a head oh maybe he was a uh uh maybe he, he did was like, a practice one he was a butcher he was a butcher and oh yeah there he you hands go up with a pig head there you go what's his tagline we've learned that they need taglines uh, uh i'm gonna make you squeal oh, oh i like it um uh we have now put more thought into pigs on head than they put to half the cenobites in this movie <laughs> cd yeah fire cds uh my 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 cenobite will be screen print he uh was a independent artist working in an edgy studio and then he ended up becoming a two-dimensional cenobite who could appear on people's uh american apparel clothing uh and he would be uh he would say, it looks good on you. And then he would like turn their clothing into death. I, I don't really know where I'm going with this. I think by the end of this podcast series, we're going to have enough for our own fan yeah, film. Yeah, we, we should really start writing these down in the blog probably. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great fucking time. We'll yeah. see everybody in a couple weeks. Yep. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.